when you make this change that we just talked about, going from proof of work to proof of stake, you break a lot of the really cool stuff. I don't think any of us appreciated the complexity and, and how much fixing we'd have to do after breaking Nakamoto consensus. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app. And you know what? They crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Lane, how you doing, man? Doing well, Pete. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Um, I'm going to have to keep a little eye on the uh, mixer here because we don't have Danny, so uh, sadly because of that. But anyway, look, good to see you. You're my uh, favorite Ethereum guy to talk to. <laughs> I didn't know you had a favorite Ethereum guy to talk to. <laughs> well, listen, look, it's hard to do the show without talking about Ethereum sometimes. And just for context, for you and for anyone listening, because some people are like, why Why would you do this? There's, there's two real reasons. I always want to help people understand Bitcoin or understand myself why Bitcoin is designed and built in the way it does, the way it works. So the arguments of proof of work versus proof of stake for me really is helping me understand why proof of work is so important to Bitcoin and why it's unique. Uh, so that helps me understand. It isn't just a dump on dump on Ethereum. I don't really care about Ethereum existing or anything like that. Um, but the second reason is there are plenty of people who listen to the show who aren't Bitcoin maxis. Plenty. I get lots of emails uh, and it's a range. Some people saying to me, why won't you consider altcoins or why won't you consider Ethereum or saying they have questions. So it does two jobs. It helps them understand uh, if there's any inherent risks with Ethereum, but also helps me understand why Bitcoin is designed in the way it is. So if, if that helps you understand why I want to do this. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I, I like the thing you mentioned just now about understanding risks. I think we'll, we'll get into this today. I'm excited to get into it. But 
uh, one of the one of my issues with sort of proof of stake, the way it's been presented, and with the Ethereum roadmap, um, is that I think that the risks are not sort of fully discussed in a very open, intellectually honest way. Um, and so, yeah, that's something we could talk more about. Uh, can I share a little bit about my motivation for having this conversation as well? Well, well one thing else, let's put, just put in sure. there. Like, there's a brilliant piece recently done by Lynn Alden, Lynn Alden. which we both read. Uh, I'm going to see Lynn uh, soon, which is great, and uh, I'm going to discuss that with her as well. Um, but I just, I've got a thing here from her. She's, she's, she's very neutral on investments. She's like, look, invest in whatever you want, but you need to understand what are the trade-offs. That's what she, right. she mainly said. Um, and she said, look, overall, I conceptualize Bitcoin as a monetary asset and smart contract platform tokens as equity securities. So she was very neutral on, I think she didn't want people attacking her saying, you're just attacking Ethereum for the sake of it. She was trying to help people understand their investments. And I think I think that's a similar thing I want to do today. But yeah, yeah. No, tell me your motivation. I want to do the same. I, I was um, very impressed by Lynn's piece. Um, fantastic take. I think one of the issues, inherent issues in this conversation, proof of work versus proof of stake, which has been going on for years. You know, I joined the Bitcoin and then later the Ethereum community around 2016, 2017. It's been one of the, it's almost like, this is a, a terrible comparison, but you know we have this, this abortion topic here, which is yeah. just perennial, it just keeps coming back, it's never solved. And actually, in the same fashion, it becomes, it becomes political and it becomes religious. And what I liked so much about Lynn's take was that it was very objective. And I really agreed um, strongly with a lot of the points she made. So yeah, we should have that kind of conversation. And then just to add a tiny bit to, to my personal motivation for wanting to, to talk about this, um, as you know, I'm working on R&D for uh, like blockchain protocol R&D as part of my day job at Space Mesh. And we've been in the process now for a few years of attempting to develop, let's say, a novel protocol, a novel consensus mechanism. So something that's not proof of work, something that's not proof of stake, something that's different in some interesting and meaningful ways. I won't say better, um, but, but different. And um, now we're in kind of the final thrust here of, of finishing this thing, putting the finishing touches on it. And as always, the hardest part, the last part is the hardest part. And through this process, these past few weeks and months, I've really deeply developed a newfound appreciation for and an understanding of proof of work and Bitcoin and Nakamoto consensus, like deeply, deeply, deeply um, uh, impressed by it in ways that I wasn't previously. And, and like Lynn's piece helped with that. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I think I, it's, it's a journey. And I'm kind of now just reaching a place like a high enough level where I can look back and survey the landscape and uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, speak intelligently about the landscape, proof of work, proof of stake, and other stuff. Well, listen, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to you, Lane. Um, you know, we've become friends over the last few months since we uh, since we met, and uh, we chat regularly, so people should know that. And some people are going to be saying, "Why are you having a shit going on for this?" Blah blah blah. But the point is, is that I, I, people won't might not have listened to our previous interview. Uh, and they should because it was great. But you are actually a Bitcoiner, which uh, people should understand. Uh, you are somebody who was passionate about Ethereum and the idea of DAOs. Uh, I have questions over them, but we don't need to cover that today. Future uh, topic of conversation. Future topic, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you are a Bitcoiner, and but you are somebody a Bitcoiner who understands Ethereum quite well. So for you as someone who is critical of proof of stake, I think you're a, a good person to come and talk to about this because we do have this ongoing Bitcoin versus Ethereum exactly. war. It never ends. And when anyone criticizes the other one's protocol, the other team jump on the defense. Right. And it's very, very rare that you have someone who's impartial and sit in the middle and just be completely honest about this. And I feel like as you're a Bitcoiner and you're an ETH guy, you are about as impartial as they get on this topic. So I could have talked to some, you know, Bitcoin guys and have them criticize proof of work. And maybe I will. I mean, I did reach out to Hugo, who's 
you know, he's been covering this quite a bit. He's been writing threads about That's this. That's right, the articles, yeah. So yeah, he, his stuff's been interesting. Yeah. I did reach out to him. Um, but, like, I'm just as happy to talk to you about it. So I appreciate you coming on and doing this. You'll probably get some sh people shit on you. I'm sure I will. From That's, both directions. Yeah, did last time too. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, I can handle it. Um, no, thank you for having me. This is, this is, as I said, a really interesting, important topic. And uh, I think we can have a pretty objective conversation about it. So okay. Let's dive in. <laughs> well, it's, as you know, it's not the most technical audience. I like to keep things simple, uh, especially just for me uh, as well, but for the audience. So as a starting point, I, I was going to ask you, let's let's talk about, let's define both protocols. Let's talk, uh, and let's talk about these consensus, these consensus mechanisms and how they work. So I wanted to say, let, let's talk about how proof of work, you know, how it, what it is and how yeah. it works. But you, you mentioned a moment ago, let's yeah. take it a different direction. But Well, no, so I, I want to do that. I want to maybe zoom out even a tiny little bit further and just really approach the topic from first principles. I think that that's been the journey I've been on and the way I've been able to kind of get my head around some of this stuff. So um, I know you're always happy to go back to basics. Yes, There's always new listeners. And, and even for those of us who have been in this space for a few years, uh, it's always helpful to, to revisit some of the basics. So uh, I think the, the first and most important question is kind of like, what is a blockchain um, and what problem is Bitcoin trying to solve? And um, yeah, if you'll if you'll indulge me here, I think it would be interesting to go back actually as far as the 1970s. Okay. And this um, field um, of computer science called distributed systems, right? And back around that time was when the foundation work in this field was laid by um, folks like Leslie Lamport. Uh, and for folks who aren't familiar with Lamport, you know, he was a professor, educator, computer scientist. Um, in this field, like read his papers, the stuff he wrote, it's very accessible, and, and, and people he was working with. And he first articulated this problem, he and, and his co-authors, uh, as the Byzantine general's problem, right? So I think a lot of your listeners will be familiar with this concept. So what is the Byzantine general's problem? In a nutshell, it's the challenge of coming to agreement, otherwise known as reaching consensus, on something, the state of the world, or a coin flip, or something like this, or the state of a transaction, uh, in the presence of something called Byzantine behavior, right? And Byzantine behavior is sort of unpredictable behavior. Uh, it's kind of like, um, it's like agents that you can't rely on, right? And so in, in the reason this was called the Byzantine generals problem is there was this metaphor put forth of uh, generals trying to attack a city, right? So there's multiple generals, and each of them has these messengers that they can send to one another. But the problem is some of the messengers might not make it, you know, from one camp to another. Some of them might be corrupted along the way or replaced or something, right? So uh, in an adversarial environment, right, how do you exchange messages and achieve consensus, agreement on the state of something? And this is directly applicable in computer science um, when you have a scenario like the internet or like any major protocol or network where you have multiple systems exchanging messages with one another over a medium like the internet, because the same things can happen, right? Messages can be corrupted, they can be uh, delayed, they can be um, uh, censored completely. And the reason this emerged around the 70s is because up to that time, computers didn't really talk to each other very much, right? And when, when you are only trying to kind of run a program on a single computer, you don't really have this issue of Byzantine behavior, right? Uh, if the, if the, the memory chip sends a message to the, to the CPU, you know, writes to the hard drive, it's very unlikely that, unlikely that that message is going to get in, intercepted or corrupted or something. It can happen, but it's very, very unlikely. But when you introduce things like the internet or the proto-internet, the DARPAnet, which, which emerged around this time, um, all of a sudden, right, you're in the situation where systems are trying to agree on things and exchange messages in a very adversarial, hostile environment. And remember, back then... The internet was like, you know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the physical 
couplers, you know, the physical modems where the phone, the physical phone would sit, you know, yep. the thing that was this shape, right? I yep. think young people today don't know what this is anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. Couple in and so the connections would get dropped, you know, your, your mom would pick up the phone downstairs, and yep. you, right? So um, these things are all still very relevant today. So this is kind of like the, the, the background, right? And for, so we can fast forward now uh, about 30 years, give or take, right? So over the following 30 years, um, a lot of work was done in this field of distributed systems by a lot of very smart computer scientists. And they developed a couple of categories of algorithms, uh, which tend to fall into the header like PBFT, which is practical Byzantine fault tolerance. Um, these are things like um, Raft and Paxos. Uh, and these are interesting background reading as well. I think any like dyed-in-the-wall Bitcoiner really should take, you know, the holidays are coming up, right? Take a few days to sit down and like read this stuff because this is the foundational work. These are the enabling technologies um, that Satoshi and the other cypherpunks were working with when they developed Bitcoin and the precursors to it. So um, the way that these PBFT-style protocols work um, is that there is a set of known actors, a relatively small set. And um, they're fairly complex, right? There's sort of these different rounds of message passing where you have sort of the, the different actors who submit proposals, and then maybe you have a leader elected who collates those proposals and, and, and puts together a master proposal and broadcasts it out to the group, and then other um, actors will acknowledge they received it. And, and through this process of three or four rounds of communication, they are able to solve the Byzantine general's problem, right? So solutions were proposed as far back as the 70s. Um, there's a couple of issues with these algorithms. So the first and most obvious is that, well, first, they're, they're a bit slow and a bit complicated. As you can imagine, there's a lot of message passing going on. The second is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, they require that all the participants be known ahead of time, right? What does that mean? It means they have skin in the game in the form of reputation, right? So if Alice and Bob and Charlie and Daniel are you know, passing messages around and Bob you know, goes malicious and broadcasts a bad message or, or, or doesn't broadcast a message, Alice, Charlie, and Daniel know that it was Bob who did this, right? Because he has a digital signature on it. They knew who Bob is. And they can remove him in the future or punish him out of protocol. They can punch him in the face or something, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're, a, you're an idiot. Um, and uh, none of these protocols had the ability to do sanctions in the protocol. That's a really key, important point. So now let's, let's just fast forward all the way up to 2008, you know, to, to Satoshi Nakamoto's time. So um, let's set this consensus stuff aside just for a sec and focus on what Bitcoin is. We'll, we'll tie the threads together in a sec. So what I've understood over time about Bitcoin that I find so interesting is that it's um, the, the enabling technologies that went into it were not themselves novel. Right? This is a key thing to understand. And it's a lot like the, bit, the, sorry, the, the iPhone in this respect, right? When Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone in 2007, I think it was uh, actually, funnily enough, around the same time, um, you know, touchscreens were not new. He didn't invent those. He didn't invent a quote-unquote internet communicator. Uh, he didn't really invent the smartphone, right? There were kind of like phones that did these things already. Obviously, there were mobile phones. What was so special about the iPhone was the packaging and the presentation around it. And I think uh, that parallel for me is very helpful in understanding Bitcoin because what Satoshi did was he didn't invent proof of work. He didn't invent um, uh, Merkle trees. He didn't invent peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, right? All these things existed before, right? He just so, brought them together. Exactly, yeah. in a very compelling way. So Merkle Trees was worked on by Ralph Merkle. It had been used in Git previously. Peer-to-peer, -peer, obviously, like we had Napster, we had BitTorrent, things like that. Proof of work, I think, was invented by Adam Back. It was one of 
there were only eight citations in the Bitcoin white paper, and one of them was Adam Back's work on proof of work. Uh, and it had been used previously in things like email to prevent spam, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. But so he tied them together in a very compelling way. And tying things back now to the consensus question, Satoshi did invent something uh, completely novel. And the thing that he invented is called Nakamoto consensus. And we need to draw a slight distinction here. So Nakamoto consensus is the, the name given to the whole bundle of consensus mechanisms in Bitcoin, including proof of work. But it's not just proof of work. We can also break that apart a little bit. Um, but proof of work is, is the biggest part of it. So uh, I'll, I'll, I, I'm coming to a conclusion here, I promise. So um, what is Nakamoto consensus and how does it solve the, the Byzantine generals problem in a more compelling way? So I said before there were a couple of issues with the uh, PBFT category of solutions. The first was that all the actors have to be known ahead of time. And the second is that there's no kind of in-protocol sanctions. And um, so I think that what Nakamoto Consensus did is for the first time it solved these problems. And it just like took this whole field of distributed computing, it like woke it up and just took it like fast forward an entire generation because the field had, there really hadn't been a whole lot of big innovation happening prior to Satoshi's work. And now of course it's exploded. So the way that it solves these problems is by introducing the idea of, really, of proof of work and, and Nakamoto consensus. So um, uh, as I'm sure you know, listeners are familiar uh, with, you know, the way mining works in Bitcoin is that um, anyone anywhere in the world permissionlessly, without registering, without being known, just purely kind of pseudonymously, can just turn on a miner and participate in this cryptographic race that happens to produce new blocks. Um, that's huge, right? Because these PBFT algorithms didn't scale beyond tens or maybe in the extreme hundreds of participants. Obviously, Bitcoin scales into the tens of thousands, probably well beyond. I'm not sure that there's really a limit. Um, maybe limits in latency and things like that. We haven't reached them yet, right? And uh, the way it enables this is through the punishment mechanism, right? Which is that you have to spend a scarce resource in order to be eligible to mine. And so really the key insight here is the following. It replaces one entity, one person, one actor, one vote, which is how PBFT works, with I think the way Satoshi described it is like one CPU, one computer, one vote, which really should be like one unit of computational work, one vote. That's a very, very powerful idea, and that's the foundation for Nakamoto consensus. I'll pause there and catch my breath. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Well, let's just unpack it. Let's sure. talk about let's talk about how it works. Let's talk about how uh, bad actors, are, well, what a bad actor might try right. and do, and how they're caught and how they're punished. Right. So, I mean, the, the most obvious thing that a quote-unquote Byzantine actor might do in Bitcoin is something like um, trying to double spend, right? So that would look like, you know, within the same block trying to spend the same UTXO twice, something like that, right? And obviously, this is not allowed by the protocol. Um, so what would happen here? Well, uh, you can try it. You can try it. You can create these mm -hmm. two trend, these two incompatible transactions, yep. and put them into a block together if you're a miner. But that block will not be accepted by the network. Um, there's other things you can do, right? You could you could spend more than you're allowed to attempt to spend more than you're allowed to in the Coinbase transaction. Um, I'm sure there's other forms of bad behavior. But well, let's it, break it down. Yeah. So a miner is competing to mine a block, right? And they can. Let me. Did they they construct the block anyway. Everyone constructs the blocks, and whether it's whether or not the one they're constructed is the one yeah, added to the block. Yeah, there's a little bit of. Um, or do they construct the block after? There's a little bit of sophistication here. There's, yeah. I believe, the more sophisticated miners now do a thing called pre-consensus, where they actually agree to some extent on the contents of the block before one of them actually successfully finds the, the nonce and mines it and seals the block. But effectively, yeah, you can think of it as, you know, they all. So all the miners are kind of 
trying, 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 trying to mine a block. And then they receive a new block, right? And this is the, the simple version of this. And the moment they receive the new block, they say, okay, they, they quickly validate it, they quickly check it. That's a very cheap process to do. Mining is expensive, but validation is, is very easy. This asymmetry is very key. And Bitcoin. the validation is against the consensus rules. Correct, right. So you're doing things like checking, you know, is the block that it points to a valid block? So it's kind of recursive in that way. Um, you run through all the transactions, you make sure that each of the transactions is valid. There's no, you're not trying to spend a UTXO that you don't know about. You're not trying to double spend a UTXO, things like that. There's a couple more rules, like that the Coinbase, which is the way the miners receive the block subsidy, uh, it has to be- 100 blocks. Uh, right, they have to wait 100 blocks to spend it, that's one thing, but also that they, they, they insert a transaction to pay themselves the Coinbase in each block, right? So they can't, like if you tried to pay yourself 25 Bitcoin or something, you can't right now because we've had- You happenings. can pay yourself less though, right? You can pay yourself, I think you yeah, can pay yourself less. I'm pretty less. sure I think, you I think can it's pay, capped. Yeah, it's capped, so whatever it is now, but it's- But there's no reason you would ever do that. No. But but um, what I'm saying is that doesn't the, the rule of consensus isn't broken by paying yourself less. I think that's true. But it's broken if you pay more. Yeah. Yeah. So they quickly validate the block. They make sure that it passes all these checks. This whole process takes on the order of milliseconds. It's very, very, very quick. I, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, in Ethereum, and we'll come back to this much longer. So I'm the miner, create the block. Yeah. Re receive a block, receive a block, well, right? Receive a block, yeah. validate it. And then once you've done that, then you know that you have a new valid block upon which you can try to mine the next block. Yeah. Right? But and that's important because you need the hash of that block in order to mine the next one. But I mine the next block. Say I mine the next block. Which, uh, which by the way, let's, let's just be very specific, yeah. right? So what that means exactly in concrete terms is that you have a bunch of transactions sitting in the mempool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are transactions that you've received from the network, from peers or, or maybe from people connected directly to you. And you're going to scoop up a bunch of them, and this is also part of the validation logic, right? Is that yep. the, the block size has to be less than a certain amount. Um, you're going to scoop kind of the highest value transactions uh, from the top of the mempool, and you're going to put them together. And then if you have that and you have the previous block, you have all the information you need to mine a new block. Mm -hmm. And mining a new block simply means this, this proof of work, right? Which is spinning your ASICs to find a nonce, which is just a simple number that is below the difficulty threshold. And again, this is another rule, right? If you mine a block with a nonce that is not below the difficulty threshold, it doesn't have a certain number of leading zeros in mm -hmm. front of it, it would not be accepted by the network. But I mine the block. Yeah. And within there, I've tried some jiggery-pokery. I've tried to double spend a bit. Any of the rules we just discussed, yeah. any of them, you could, you could try to mine a block, as I said, with a difficulty that's not low enough, that yeah. kind of thing. And then when I broadcast that to the network, every other node will, will try and validate it. Right. And because I've tried to break the rules, they will reject that block. Correct. So what happens at that point? Right. Do, other, do other people still have the ability to mine that block? Right. So this is, this is okay. So the, the, what happens is that all the other nodes in the network that see this block are going to do the same thing we just discussed. They're going to run it through the validation rules, and they're going to drop the block. Mm -hmm. They're not going to punish you explicitly. The punishment is implicit, right? Yeah. We'll talk about that in one sec. But no, no one's going to mine on top of it. They're going to they're going to see it. They're going to discard it, and they're going to keep doing what they're doing. They're going to keep trying to mine w waiting, on top of the previous. Block. Yeah, waiting for a valid block. Uh, no, well, if they're mining, they're going to continue looking for a nonce. Yeah, no, right? I mean the nodes are going right. to keep waiting for Correct. a valid block. They'll just completely yeah. discard the block. Yeah. So what happens to you as the miner who mined the, the invalid block? Well, again, it's not an explicit punishment. It's an implicit punishment in the sense that you spent a lot of money to mine that block. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the, the latest figures, you know, but you spent many thousands of dollars. Well, possibly tens of thousands, yeah. or maybe hundreds of thousands. Right. Uh, it, it should be less than the marginal cost, the, sorry, the marginal revenue, the which Bitcoin is, in the block. Which, which is, I think is about it's six, three, 350 now? 
something like that. Yeah. 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 So you could spend 100,000 money in the blockchain. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, it, and it should be profitable if you follow the rules of the protocol. But this is, this is Satoshi's genius. This yeah. is where the, um, the game theory comes in, right? Yeah. You're simply never incentivized to attempt to mine a bad block because you, you effectively burned all those dollars yeah. or whatever you're you know, paying to, to pay for the electricity, to run the miner, to mine the block. That's how Nakamoto consensus and, works. And, and it's all instant. There's no, like, it's just all instant. So you've instantly burned. You've missed the opportunity of receiving right. that Coinbase because you've burned it. Right. Yeah. Genius. So it's genius and it's really, really simple, right? So from this point forward in the conversation, you and I are going to take a journey down a really dark, twisted rabbit hole, which is trying to kind of understand proof of stake. Um, well, let's just let's just try and break, break it for a second. For okay. sure, for sure, yeah. So for me as a... Well, as a solo miner, I'm very unlikely to mine a block. But imagine I had a small... Unless you're in a pool, in which case... Yeah, I'm in a pool. But like, imagine I had a small farm and yeah, I had enough that I would maybe mine a block a day. Maybe I'd just mine one block a day. block a day is a lot, by the way. I know, but just, <laughs> just, just for, for the sake. It's a lot. Maybe I, I mine one block a day. Sure. There is still no incentive for me to try and create invalid blocks because all I'm doing is every, every day I'm going to lose that amount of money. Yeah. Where this becomes an existential threat to Bitcoin is if someone has enough hash power, say they had 51% of the hash power, right. which we, nobody has right now, but they could keep mining invalid blocks. So, okay, so let, let's talk about this because this is another very important aspect of Bitcoin. And, and this is also something Lynn mentioned in, in her article, which we talked about earlier. In theory, what you're saying is true. However, the bulwark, right, the defense mechanism in the governance of Bitcoin is that we have so many home miners, ordinary mm -hmm. people running nodes, and all of those nodes would reject all of the blocks, right? So sure, if I have you know, some, some substantial portion of the hash power in the Bitcoin network, I can keep turning out invalid blocks, and your node and my node are going to keep rejecting them unless, okay. unless, unless someone hacked our computer and literally changed the software. Okay. Okay, no, that's fair. No, you're right. Meaning yeah. that you would still be burning nothing. money. And, but, but the reason this is so important is that this is not necessarily the case in networks like Ethereum because so few people run their own nodes. And this is a very important distinction between the two. And it's something I'm still, yeah, like understanding. Okay. Okay. No, so I understand it. Okay. So the rules of consensus are fixed. If I send an invalid block, the nodes are going to reject it. There is no incentive for me to be sending invalid blocks. It's quite simple, really. It's really very simple. Yeah. It's very elegant. simple and very elegant. Yeah. It's a very, very elegant solution to a very thorny problem. And the unique innovation was the fact that we have a token within the system which has value. Right. I would say that the well, everything we just talked two. about, yeah. everything we just talked about is the infrastructure mm -hmm. that allowed the Bitcoin coin to be created. Yeah. And we talked earlier, what is the what is the Byzantine General's problem? It's this problem of how a set of actors that don't trust each other can agree on something, the state of the world. And the state of the world in the case of Bitcoin is, is exactly the set of UTXOs, mm -hmm. the ledger, basically. Now, there's other things about Nakamoto consensus that are really brilliant. And this is now beginning to get into things that I didn't fully appreciate earlier. So I'll give right. you an example. Um, it has a beautiful property of self-healing built into it. And this is not something people usually talk about when they talk about Bitcoin. But if you had uh, certain classes of attack, or, and, and by the way, like when we use terminology like attack, it, it, you know, it's sort of like a Byzantine style fault. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a malicious actor who's actively attacking the network. It could mean that like uh, a, a, an undersea cable was accidentally cut, right? Or that there's a, you know, 
there's some fault in the network. Or, or actually, an even better example is um, a release of the software that has a bug in it. So some, let's say, 10% of people upgrade before they realize there's a bug. Um, so these are all classes of like Byzantine faults or attack, quote unquote attacks against the network, right? If there's an attack and you get like a fork in the network, right? So in, in the case of Bitcoin, anytime you have a disagreement about the consensus, like for example, let's say some percentage of the nodes, 10% of the nodes uh, believe that a UTXO is valid and 90% and think it's not. What's going to happen? You're going to have a fork in the network. This is also what happens after a hard fork uh, if it's contentious and not everyone sort of chooses to, to upgrade. Um, once the fault is resolved, the network heals itself and keeps going as if nothing happened. It doesn't require any intervention, right? So if you imagine, uh, for sake of argument, let's say that there's 10% of the Bitcoin mining nodes in Fiji and some large ship accidentally bumps up against a cable, knocks it out, and all the Fiji miners are separated from the rest of the network for you know, an hour or something or even a day. And then later on, the cable is restored. They come back online. So this is a partition and a rejoin. Um, what will happen? You can kind of think about it from both sides, right? Uh, from the perspective of the Fiji side, they're going to they're gonna see that 90% of the hash power suddenly disappeared. And suddenly, it's going to be very difficult for them to produce any blocks because they would have to be waiting for a difficulty adjustment. This is not that different from what happened when the Chinese miners went offline, mm -hmm. right? And so they're, really, they're going to get stuck. They're not going to make much progress. However, the rest of the world is going to keep producing blocks. It might take 10% longer, so the block time might go up from 10 minutes to 11 minutes or something, or, you know, yeah, on average. Um, and then once the rejoin happens, the Fiji miners, I don't know why I'm picking on Fiji. It's a lovely country. Yeah. <laughs> it's an island. So. I think they've just reopened to tourists. Maybe we'll do an episode in Fiji in the future. Yeah, maybe. Um, the Fiji miners will see the longest chain. And obviously, the, it, it's, you know, with 99.999999% likelihood, the longest chain will be the non-Fiji chain because that's where all the miners are. And uh, another aspect of Nakamoto consensus, I mentioned before, it's not just proof of work. So it also includes this thing called a fork choice rule. What is a fork choice rule? Very, very simple. If you see two chains, it tells you it's a very simple algorithm you can use to determine which one is the canonical chain. And the beautiful thing about Bitcoin and Nakamoto consensus is that the fork choice rule is dead simple. Longest chain wins. Longest chain. It's, technically, it's the chain with the, the most, greatest yeah. accumulated proof of work, right? Uh, which is which is more or less the same thing as the longest chain. So the Fiji miners are going to see the global chain, and they're going to immediately do what's called a reorg, and they're going to switch over to that chain, and then we proceed on as if nothing had happened. And the network has has had a fault and healed itself, and. That is a very, very, very powerful idea, and it's something that proof-of-stake networks uh, really struggle to do. It's, it's, it's much more complicated, and in, in Space Mesh as well, with Proof of Space Time, we have a whole separate mechanism to do this, an explicit, very complicated piece of code that emulates this, this self-healing. So this is another example of a really beautiful, unique property of, of Nakamoto consensus, and um, this is why I love Nakamoto consensus in Bitcoin so much, because it's so elegant and so simple in how it works. So if Nakamoto consensus is so beautiful, elegant, and works so perfectly, why is anyone working on an alternative consensus model? What is the incentive? Because what it seems to me is that every other uh, consensus uh, mechanism that's worked on is far more complicated, less elegant, comes with more risks, more attack vectors, and and a much higher level of complexity. So uh, we'll come back to Ethereum, but just generally speaking, why? Sure. I mean... Obviously, there's some people who want to use the 
energy fud against Bitcoin as a reason to look at proof of stake right. because it gives them an argument in the marketplace for people who are anti-proof of work. That one's an obvious one. But what other reasons would people look at a different consensus mechanism? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a great transition into talking about things like proof of stake. So I think there are a few reasons. So the energy intensity is one of them. Uh, for sake of argument, right? Entertain this as a thought experiment. Okay. Imagine that we had something that did the same things as Nakamoto consensus, but was less energy intensive, right? For sake of argument. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'd all be on board with it, right? It's not that Bitcoiners are into killing trees. Obviously, we, we love Nakamoto consensus. We love proof of work because it solves a very important set of problems. Solves the problem in the same way, as elegant, okay? If it existed. If it, if existed. it existed, provided the same level of security. Right. right. Okay, then of course. Right. So that's one, one factor, okay? The second factor is... Um, is scaling. Okay. Okay. So one of the downsides to proof of work and to Nakamoto consensus is that it doesn't scale super well. Uh, there are fundamental limits to the mechanism, to how, uh, how long that mining process takes, right? There's a certain amount of energy that must be expended to do that and to how fast those blocks can be communicated across the network. Um, there have been some proposals to tweak Bitcoin proof of work. Um, there's one called Bitcoin NG. Do you remember this at all? This was like five, six-ish years ago. I think it came from Amin Gunsir, his team at, at Cornell back in the day. Um, Is the he the was, Avalanche guy? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea was something like you have consensus work the way it does, and one miner wins and produces a block. But instead of sending out a single block, they rapidly generate, they can keep rapidly generating blocks and firing them off every few seconds until another miner wins, at which point they take over. And that would sort of theoretically improve the scalability of Bitcoin. Why was it rejected? I should have reviewed this again yeah, before this conversation. I don't matter. remember, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one big one is that if you do this, then suddenly the Bitcoin blockchain bloats and gets really, really, really big with, with an order of magnitude more blocks or something, right? And then right. things happen like it becomes harder to run a node, it becomes harder to mine. Um, again, latency is an issue, right? These Bitcoin blocks are, are a megabyte, I guess two megabytes now with SegWit. And um, it takes a while, right, for that a message of that size to isn't traverse four, the globe. Isn't it four megabytes with SegWit? The block weight is four megabytes, I believe. I thought it was two, but... Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not like yeah, I'm not <laughs> super fine. deep in the technical yeah. details. Well, it, it was always it was one megabyte. So Satoshi introduced the one megabyte limit quite early on in the life of Bitcoin. Yeah. I know Segwit increased it. Segwit incre increased the block weight to form. I think it's four megabytes. We can double check that. No worries. I still I still don't know the difference between yeah. block size and block weight. It's, it means nothing to me. Let's not get into that. Yeah. Um, so these blocks are relatively large, right? Ethereum blocks are an order of magnitude smaller, and they have to be because. The block time in Ethereum is like 14 seconds, so it's much yeah. faster. Anyway, so just circling, just closing the thread on, on this topic. Um, one of the benefits of, I mean, I don't know if you want to dive completely into proof of stake right now or not, but let's say, let's say one of not the limitations yet. of Nakamoto consensus and proof of work is that it doesn't lend itself very well to scalability, and scalability is a hot topic right now. If if you think you want faster than 10 minute block times, and if you think you want larger blocks. But I think what Bitcoiners would argue is that we're okay with 10-minute block times. And 10 minutes isn't too long. An hour to confirm a transaction. And for smaller you know, uh, smaller transactions, you, you have the lightning. You have lightning and you yeah. have liquid. Liquid gives you one-minute yeah. block times. 
So, and I think I would have thought that one of the most important things is protecting bloat at the blockchain, right? Because we want people to be able to run their own nodes, right. and we, you know, we want the block the block size. The blockchain is going to increase in size, but we want to do it as like a a measured progress, so people can afford to, you know, run a a node, and right. you know, maybe like the hard disk. You know, we, we're not out competing the speed at which uh, affordable hard right. disks right. become available. I mean, you can get a fairly cheap one terabyte hard disk now, even two terabytes. Bucks. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just that we yeah. don't outpace that. Let me, um, let's talk about this. Just stay on this for one second, because yeah. this is exactly a perfect example of one of these like nuanced things about Bitcoin that I think I didn't fully appreciate. I think I was very much in the Ethereum camp and drinking that Kool-Aid uh, saying, um, why, like, why is it an issue that Ethereum's blockchain is, you know, on the order of a few terabytes now, whereas Bitcoin is still just a few hundred gigabytes. Why does it matter? Um, it's still sort of possible to, and barely possible to run an Ethereum full node on like a Apple laptop like, like yours. Um, but uh, I think what I'm really understanding is that it's not just a thing, it's not just a, out of principle that Bitcoiners want to run these nodes. It's actually very practical and very pragmatic. And what helped me understand it was, was partly Lynn's article but also partly understanding um, the block size wars in 2017. Like I had just joined the Ethereum community at that time. Sorry, the, the Bitcoin community at that time. And so like the very first thing I saw was people on Twitter, you know, setting like hashtag no 2x and you know all this kind of stuff and the, the sides of the war here. But it's really truly remarkable how so much of the hash power, so many of the big companies, the miners, um, were all behind this idea, the Segwit 2x idea, and it still failed. Right? Why did it fail? because the plebs were against the idea. Um, and that's only possible in a network where you have so many people running nodes at home uh, and threatening to do a UASF or something if, if the change proceeds. And that, I think, realistically, that would be a very um, difficult thing for Ethereum to achieve right now because not many people run the full nodes. Well, it's a core pillar of Bitcoin's ethos right. is to be maximally decentralized. Like, Come across people. I come against people on this argument quite often. Where I, and I really hate this decentralization as a spectrum because I think it's gaslighting people. Um, it's not. It's not about it being a spectrum. For me, it's about being maximally decentralized. I think I said this right. to you last time. And directionally, where are you heading? Right. The constant conversation in Bitcoin, and it doesn't matter which aspect of Bitcoin, whether it's miners or nodes or developers or whatever. It's how do we maintain maximum decentralization? Always thinking of issues like that. Yeah, it's a slippery slope, right? Yeah. Because you kind of take a couple steps in that direction, and the next thing you know, you're Ethereum, and the next thing you know, after that, you're Solana. Yeah, it's, uh, and next thing you know, you're just a single Oracle database. <laughs> yeah. But like the the point is, is like Bitcoin is always, and everyone I've always spoken to is has that idea is that we must be decentralized. Right. We must be resistant to state attack. And the Alan Farrington paper was really useful for me to understand in that is the risks that Ethereum, the trade-offs they've made right. with regards to decentralization. So I, I always feel that decentralization as a spectrum is gaslighting. Yeah, I, the thing I would say about decentralization is like, it's one of these things that doesn't matter until you need it. And when you need it, you really, really need it. And the reality of the, we're in this, um, we're in this halcyon, like beautiful moment right now, right? Where both we're, you know, in the middle of a, hopefully still the middle, right? Of a, of a long um, bull market on the one hand. On the other hand, like regulation hasn't really started to bite yet. I mean, we've seen it, you know, getting stuff happen in China and FUD getting closer, but it's not going to stay this way forever. Nope. Um, and when it doesn't, 
what, what is that great quote from the, I think it was Chuck Prince, the former CEO of Citigroup or something, when, when the financial crisis happened back in 07, 08, he said something like, when the water goes out, you see who's been swimming without any pants on the whole time. You know, like when, when you really need decentralization, you really need it. And uh, this is why, yeah, I, I definitely believe in Bitcoin long-term. And there is a spectrum of decentralization. And there I is. don't think every application in the world needs this quote unquote sovereign grade censorship resistance that you get with a network like Bitcoin. You might get with a network like Ethereum. That's a question you definitely don't have with less decentralized networks. Well, if someone's going to say decentralization is a spectrum, it's usually because they're working on a protocol sure. that has less, is, well, isn't Bitcoin, so it will be less decentralized. So my questions would be, okay, where on the spectrum are you? Right. And where are you headed? Right. I think you, that, so again, this goes back to something we said earlier about risks. My issue is is not necessarily with the spectrum. It's that people are not honest about it, right? If you or, or they're just ignorant about it, right? If you go down the road to one of these Solana meetups and you talk to all the developers who are very excited about the project, you try to have a deep conversation with them about this. Like it's just not something that's been communicated clearly to them, and I don't think they understand. Maybe they don't care. I don't. I don't think they care. I think that's one of the points. Is that if you if you separate Bitcoin and crypto, Bitcoin right. generally cares about decentralization. Right. Crypto, I think, generally doesn't. If you're an NFT trader or a uh, shitcoin trader, you don't really care. You just don't. And yeah, I, I, it doesn't. You're not going to have state actors coming after your uh, your board ape or whatever. Exactly. And I just don't think people care or they don't understand it. But I also think they're working on different problems, which is sure. why I'm sure. I'm less hostile to it. It's like, cool. Right. Look, you want to trade uh, NFTs? You want to go to uh, uh, Art Basel and in uh, Miami and you know, run around and talk about NFTs and that's cool. Go and do it. You know, you're not trying to. Yeah. You're not trying to separate money and state. You're yeah. not trying to rebuild the global financial infrastructure or something that's more trusted. That's fine. Absolutely fine with that. But when someone comes and says to me, Ethereum is ultrasound money, and they are trying to step in the era of Bitcoin and say, look, we are we are competing now with Bitcoin. We're going to make claims similar to Bitcoin, but we are missing the the pillars that makes Bitcoin sound money, right. that's when I have an issue. So right. look, if you want to build a, a distributed protocol, which is marginally decentralized, but really, really the benefits of that is permissionless and you know, trade your NFT is cool. Just don't, don't, don't start competing with Bitcoin and saying you're, you're ultrasound money because it's fucking dishonest. And that, that, that's, the, that's just the area that pisses me off because somebody might go, hmm, Mm. I might invest in this. And it might be a, another country like El Salvador goes, well, maybe we should consider Ethereum. Ethereum's growing faster. It's got uh, what, what, EIP 1559 and it's got it's going to become, you know, like, like those Australian academics have recently, it's, it's going to become deflationary. So it's going to be an even better form of money. It's like it's just fucking dishonest. They're kind of missing the point, yeah, right? They're and missing this, a lot again, of this goes back again to this question of intellectual honesty. It yeah. applies to proof of stake. It applies to a lot of this stuff. Um, Maybe Ethereum does become deflationary. Maybe it stays that way. But right, what's the governance around that? Uh, you know, who, who's involved in those decisions? And and this again connects back to this question: who's running the nodes? And what happens if you get a cartel? Right, if you get a colluding set of of powerful actors who decide to make a decision in their own interest, and uh, you don't have that critical mass of node operators who can kind of push back or refuse to upgrade or something like that. Those those safety yeah. mechanisms might be missing. Well, and also, I mean, we're going down rabbit holes here, but how useful is a deflationary currency in a protocol that's designed to be a smart contract platform? You know, if you're if it's costing yeah. you a thousand dollars to execute a smart right, contract, right, right. you know, it says to me that trying to be ultrasound money is in conflict with that. I mean, look, we're going we're going down a, a different yeah, rabbit hole, are. a different <laughs> argument. But but the point is is that 
I think people just really, it's like back to what Lynn said. If you're making investments, you need to understand what you're investing in. Exactly. You know, if you're buying Ethereum because you want number to go up, fine. You need to understand Especially, there's also a time preference here, right? And Bitcoiners yeah. are, are famous for having very long time preference. They're very patient. This is one of the things I, I love about this community. Um, and so I think, if I remember correctly, one of Lynn's points is like, sure, like you might have a thesis that, you know, the Solanas and the Ethereums are going to kind of do well in, in a bull market in the short term or something, but how are they going to do in the long term? Well, and, and again, this is why I think the Bitcoiners are like fighting shitcoins just for the sake of fighting shitcoins. I started to feel it's a little bit pointless, but I think that separation of, you know, Bitcoin not blockchain or Bitcoin not right. crypto is an important differentiator because anyone coming in thinks, oh, this cryptocurrency you know, sector, which yeah. Bitcoin is one of. But actually, these things are fundamentally different. Yeah. Okay, they use cryptography, they use a blockchain, but what they're actually that's trying where, to That's achieve, where the similarities end, basically, right? <laughs> well, it's, it comes down to the, using maxi as a pejorative. Oh, these maxis, they don't understand it. It's like, well, what we really should separate, it's like, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to separate money and state. What are you trying to do? You're not right. trying to separate money right. and state. Okay, a car has wheels, an airplane has wheels. One is going to drive you down the road, one's going to take you... It's a good metaphor. Uh, yeah, it's going to take you uh, yeah, on transatlantic flights. They both have wheels, but they're actually fundamentally trying to do yeah. different things. Yeah. So yeah. I think, and I don't think, I think not only Bitcoiners, I think people who are behind smart contract platforms should, should actually be on board with this because that separation is right. useful for them, for investors, for the entire market, here, for here, regulators, for everyone. Here's the issue, right? I think the issue from the Ethereum perspective is that... I mean, this has always been true, but it's especially true in a proof of stake world. In order for the Ethereum network to be secure, Ether has to have value. And mm -hmm. if it has that monetary premium, then it, you know, other things being equal, it has more value. And in the world you're describing, um, what you'd want to do is store your assets in Bitcoin because that's the safest, you know, most sound form of money there is. And then when you need to do something on Ethereum or another platform, you kind of move it over, you do your thing, and then you move move it back, right? You, you, you kind of think about this as gold and silver, and you kind of have like some small um, uh, hot wallet or something that's plugged into Ethereum or another platform, and you just use it to like use applications. But basically, you store your, your money in Bitcoin, which I think is a very rational thing to do. But you see what I'm getting at here, right? That this is the reason that there's so much pushback against this idea, or, or rather that, that Ethereum people are so um, noisy about Ether being money. Because if Ether has that monetary premium, then uh, it makes the network more secure. Hmm. But it, but it's a con it's, it's in conflict with making it as a usable network for yeah, what it wants to be to execute no smart contract platforms. Yeah. Which is another thing I think was covered in the Alan Farrington uh, uh, paper, where they talked about the token actually within Ethereum uh, presenting this kind of contradiction. So anyway, look, we've gone down a rabbit hole. But useful information, but let's 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 bring it back. Okay, proof of stake. Proof of stake. My understanding is that Ethereum always planned to be to move to proof of stake. That is true, right? Yes. But but it launched with proof of work. How does uh, Ethereum's proof of work differ from Bitcoin's? What are the differences? Yeah, the, there's a couple. The, the the main difference, first of all, they're they're basically they're very 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 similar. There's yeah. not a huge difference. The, the main difference is that the actual hash function that the miners are running to find the nodes is different. In the case of Bitcoin, it's SHA-256. In the case of Ethereum, it's something called ETHash. And uh, it doesn't really matter what that is doing. The point is it's just um, your, uh, your, I mean, do you want to talk about hash functions? It's probably not really No, we don't it, need right? that. Yeah. Um, so, but the, the key distinction is the following. So SHA-256 is a very simple algorithm 
that very early on was moved over to specialized hardware, right? So first to these like FPGA type things and then later to ASICs, mm -hmm. application specific integrated circuits. So if you want to sort of mine, I think at all, I was going to say competitively, I think at all in Bitcoin today, you need specialized hardware, right? Yeah, and of course. Your friends at Compass and other organizations can like help with that. Um, Ethereum mining, on the other hand, because of this, ETH, this ETH hash algorithm was designed in such a way to be, I'm bumping up against the limits of my knowledge here, but I think it's kind of like memory hard or something. So as opposed to like SHA-256, which relies primarily on, on, on the CPU. And so for that reason, the, um, the best device to mine ETH hash is actually a GPU, a graphic, graphics card, basically an ordinary graphics card. And early on, the idea was that this is a democratizing thing because anyone anywhere in the world who has like a GPU in their system can use it to mine Ether, to mine an Ethereum profitably. Um, but there's a couple of issues with, with it. So the first is that like, uh, it's become very hard and very expensive to buy GPUs. Pissed off the gamers. Pissed off the gamers massively. Yeah. Um, I think other networks besides Ethereum have also used GPU mining. Uh, that's number one. But number two, the really interesting thing here, if you get into the economics, there's actually a nice thing about ASICs, right? Which is that they require a large capital commitment upfront, right? I, I think, a Ant Miner S19 or whatever the most modern one is, they're now selling for more than $10,000. Dude, I think I heard one today, somebody told me they got offered one for $19,000. Yeah, they've gone through the roof recently for yeah. two reasons, right? One is because Bitcoin's doing well, and, and two is because of the, the supply chain issues and mm -hmm. it's hard to produce them. And, and there's only one or two companies in the world that are able to produce them, so you have kind of this... Uh, this, Bitmain this, and... Uh, what a Miner, I think, is the other Miner, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that have a stranglehold on, on, on yeah. the supply chain. So that's not super great, but at least it, it means that if you are going to mine Bitcoin, you have this big capital investment, which going back to the question of um, sanctions and things, right? If you were to kind of like attack the network, you, you, you could be, um, how do I put it? At the point where you have the ability to attack the network, you might as well just mine and earn revenue for yourself, honestly, because if you attack the network, there's a chance that the network like changes the proof of work algorithm or something, and you brick all your all your ASICs. Yeah, the game theory still works. Out. It's game theory. Yeah. yeah. So that's that the differences are are that's the main difference between and, the two. And just very quickly, in terms of block times, block sizes, yeah. how does Ethereum differ? Yeah. So Ethereum is designed so it's still um, very similar to Nakamoto consensus. Uh, I, I don't know if technically it counts as Nakamoto consensus. You can think of it as a fork of Nakamoto consensus. So the block times are much faster. They're about 14 seconds as opposed to Bitcoin's 10 minutes. It's still a Poisson distribution. Is that the right term? Basically, <laughs> the, the, the blocks come out on, on, <laughs> on average every 10 minutes. I'm not a mathematician, obviously, but, but not precisely. You might get blocks faster or shorter, uh, faster or slower. Um, the main difference in Ethereum is that it has this concept of uncle blocks. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this topic, but because the block time is much faster, um, it, it's often the case that the two miners produce a valid block at roughly the same time. Mm -hmm. Just like in Bitcoin, one of them will ultimately win and be accepted by the network as the next canonical block in the canonical longest chain. But unlike in Bitcoin, um, the other valid blocks can be included into the chain as these things called uncle blocks, where the transactions in them are not valid, but the miner who produced it still gets some rewards. So if you go back to supply gate, right, this was a big source of the confusion there. Hold on, is it like a, is it like a sympathy block? I guess you could call it that. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a, I don't know, it's, it feels like, a, it's like an empathetic. Thanks, thanks for trying. It's a, thanks what's, for, what's the word for this? A consolation prize. It's a, what is it? A, um, what do they call it? A uh, participation trophy. Okay. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Thank, 
Hi, thank, thanks for trying. You, you lost, you, but you we'll didn't do win. this anyway. Yeah, have some. Yeah. yeah, interesting. It's an interesting mechanism. It, it, it's quite clever. It, it's one of the things that allowed Ethereum to have a shorter block time. Okay. So that's so proof of work. So, and um, do you want what, what are the block sizes for Ethereum? It's not super meaningful to talk about them in terms of um, kilobytes. Like okay. I think in in, in uh, Bitcoin, you talk about mass and satoshis per kilobyte and this kind of thing. That's how fees are calculated. Ethereum's quite a different approach. It's the real limit is gas. Okay. So it, I think it's still 12.5 million gas, which just limits the amount of uh, computation that can happen per block. You know, Bitcoin I think handles something like five or six, maybe seven transactions per second. Ethereum is more like 10 or 12. But, it, but not all the Ethereum transactions are the same gas. Some take a lot more, some take a lot less. In some cases, you can have a transaction that fills the entire block if it's a very complex transaction. Wow, okay. And are there issues with uh, latency with Ethereum being every 14 seconds? Not really, right? So I guess okay. higher latency can produce more of these uncle blocks. Um, there's been some good research done on this, you know, that uh, within half a second or a second, the vast majority of the nodes in the network have received the blocks. But okay. what I would say is that it can't really get faster, right? Okay. So it, whatever it's at right now, I know that like Solana and other blockchains have sort of like sub-second block times or one or two-second block times. Uh, I'm not completely sure how they do that from a network latency perspective. I think it's like the blocks are kind of finalized later or something, but... Let's not go down that rabbit hole either. Okay, they're very similar, by the way. Really, Bitcoin okay. and Ethereum in, in the way that they produce blocks and run this consensus. Okay, and before we get into proof of stake, can we just very quickly talk about blockchain bloat with Ethereum and sure. nodes? Because uh, I think it was it might have been Hugo. I don't want to misquote him, but somebody talked about recently that the uh, I think the total blockchain for Ethereum is around nine terabytes which makes it very difficult for anyone like myself to run a node. Um, but somebody else came recently and said, no, it's not. You only need to run a prune node. Yeah, so this I, is... I think it was like Kobe had a pop at me. This is this. another topic that pops up again and again. Maybe we can try to set the record straight once and for all. Yeah. Um, so there are multiple classes of nodes uh -huh. in Ethereum. There are... Let's talk about three. There's kind of light nodes, full nodes, and full archival nodes. And there's a separate but related question about when you boot up a new node, how do you synchronize it? How do you kind of get the snapshot of the state? Um, so a light client works just like um, SPV in, in Bitcoin. Basically, you just receive like the block headers and you're kind of trusting uh, full nodes to execute the transaction. So you're, you're, still, you're still trusting someone else. It's not trustless, right? We have this in Ethereum as well. Um, a full node downloads all the data, all the blocks, and executes all the transactions, assuming you do a full sync, not a fast sync, right? So I think this is the reason people get so confused is you have these two orthogonal ideas mm. Like you can have a full node that you booted up using a fast sync, in which case you're getting like a snapshot of the state from a trusted peer. But assuming you do the full sync from scratch, uh, a full node is a full participant and executes every transaction, every state transition, verifies every block, right? So it is completely 100% trustless, just like running a Bitcoin full node. Um, and that's sufficient to do whatever you need to do in the Ethereum network with, with one exception, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, that, I, I run one of these, it's not seven terabytes. I don't know the exact number, but it's less than two. So it's one point something, I don't know, maybe 1.5, 1.6 terabytes right now, which is not small. I mean, that's that's almost an order of magnitude bigger than Bitcoin. Uh, I a synced, new, a new, um, But you could do it with a new Mac and you can get two, four terabytes. Here's SSDs. the challenge. It's not the size. You, you can for sure, yeah. right? The challenge is not so much the storage size. Well, so one challenge is that that storage needs to be SSD. 
you can't use a spinning hard drive. You have to use a solid state, state drive yeah. because uh, you can't keep up. There's yep. just too many transactions. So that's one issue. But yes, a modern laptop would have an SSD in it. I'm sure this one does. The real challenge is the initial sync process. That takes a very long time. Even with a fast sync, you're looking at a few days, kind of like, I, I, I can't remember, I think I did this last year. It was something like two or three days um, of, actually, that was a fast sync. A full sync is probably longer. It's probably something like a week or two, right? It's so it takes a very long time. I just synced a Bitcoin full node this week, uh, and it took seven or eight hours. Okay. Very easy. Doesn't even, take that but much a, space. But a and, week and is it, not terminal. Like, there may come a time, you know, in a decade where Bitcoin is a few days. Let me think. If it took me seven hours to synchronize a full node, and Bitcoin's been running for, what, 11 plus years? It, yeah, so after 30 years or something, I assuming mean, the growth remains constant. Yeah, yeah. And, and internet speeds don't in, in, Yeah, but they will get faster. But, yeah, probably, they will get faster. So. But yeah, this, this is part of the beauty of Bitcoin, yeah. right, is that, yes, the requirements are growing, but as you said a moment ago, yeah. they're not growing faster than the hardware. Ethereum yeah. is growing faster than the hardware. Yeah. And so it is. it will become unsustainable. It's arguably there, depending where you draw the line. And there are plans to kind of address some of this in the transition to ETH2 that's going to happen next year. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And you know what? They're not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. 
It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. And you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. Can can you can you do it with a with a Raspberry Pi like you can a Bitcoin node? Bitcoin for sure, no question. Right? No, I mean uh, Ethereum. I think you could if you had a big SSD, a huge SSD drive attached to it. If you had like a two three terabyte SSD attached to it, but like in terms of the actual memory and processor, you're you're pushing it. Right? You have six. The, the biggest Raspberry Pis are eight gigabytes of memory. That might not be enough. Right, and also even with the SSDs, if I get a one terabyte SSD for That's my Bitcoin enough. for my Bitcoin node, yeah. that might still last me another five six years. Yeah. You could get a three terabyte one for Ethereum and need another one next year. So exactly. that's the risk. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, but the, this the the point I want to make here is that this is also a slippery slope, right? Yeah, of course. Like increasing the requirements by ten percent, maybe Ethereum increases by ten percent a year, can have an outsized effect where suddenly ninety percent of the people who would have done this can no longer do it, right? So it's it's not linear. Yeah. And, and once you start going down that path, right, the reason I say slippery slope is you're like, well, you know, it's already hard, so it's not a big deal if we make it a little bit harder. And this is why the thought of like increasing the Bitcoin block size is so risky. But this is the issue going back to Farrington's paper that I keep referring to is that if this is the case, Ethereum becomes more centralized because less people can or incentivize to run nodes. You end up with nodes being run more in data centers, and the data centers are the point of uh, centralization risk where right. you can go to somebody with the risk of prison time or a gun and say, switch that off. And it's, we have this issue today in Ethereum with Infura. Yes. The, so, but let's talk about that because other people, like I've said to me, that you don't have, you, you, we're not reliant upon Infura. You can run a pruned node, and it is suffice. It doesn't include the transactions you right. don't so need. Just, just to close yeah. the loop on the conversation before, I said that there's light clients, full clients, and full archival node. The only difference between a full node and a full archival node in Ethereum is the full archival node stores all the intermediate states. What does that mean? It means if I want to know my balance, not today, but as of a year ago or you know a million blocks ago, in a full archival node, I can pull that out more or less immediately. In a regular node, I'd have to like reconstruct it from blocks and transactions. So... A full archival node, like Infura, is running full archival nodes for sure, right? Infrastructure providers will run them. Application backends might need them to, like, when Are someone sends required? a token, an ERC-20, like the actual balance update, like if you want to know that that happened a year ago or two years ago, you need the full archival node to extract that data efficiently. But you don't need it as an everyday user. But but does Ethereum require full archival nodes? Does the network require full archival nodes? No. If there were no, if there were none, the network would be fine. But but certain applications would would be more inefficient because again, you can always reconstruct that data from okay. a full node, but it might take a little bit of time. Okay, so if all the full archival nodes are Ethereum would off, be fine. Ethereum would but be just fine. Be very yeah. very emphatic about that point. It's important. Yes, yeah, no, it is an important distinction. Uh, but the risk, therefore, is those the, those nodes that sit in the middle. The the right. uh, what did you call them? Light nodes, not light nodes. You called them full nodes. Full nodes. Just the full, full nodes. full nodes. The, the slippery slope is that the bloat is growing quicker than perhaps right. outpacing the speed right. of te- technology advancement. Yeah, and Correct, also but- and also they're just a pain to set up and. They're a pain to set up. I mean, again, I, I just synced a Bitcoin full node, and it was very, 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 very easy. I downloaded a thing, I ran it, and set it and forget it. Ethereum, it's it's more complicated. Um, the point I wanted to make, though, is you said, what would happen if the full archival nodes went away? Well, this is a bit of an existential question, right? It's like, what is Ethereum? If you think of Ethereum as just 
this um, the state machine with transactions, that part of the network would be okay. But a lot of the applications would stop working. In fact, I think almost all of them would stop working. So the network would be okay, but for all intents and purposes, it would like the applications would stop working. So what is Ethereum? What's left at that point? You know what I mean? So okay, this is so important. You, so you need full archive nodes for the applications? For some applications. For some but, applications. but the point is you need them to run a service like Etherscan or Infura, and almost everyone relies on Etherscan and Infura. So if you take those two service providers away, Ethereum would survive, but it would be a bumpy few weeks and months until alternatives could be designed and built and funded and everything. Okay, so alternatives would be required. And there are, to be clear, right? There are like open source, even decentralized versions of these things, but they just, they don't work very well. They're kind of funky and they don't really scale very well. Like these centralized, like Infura and, and Etherscan, they work really well. Okay, Everyone but, uses them for a reason because they work really well. But it sounds to me that, that therefore it is a whack-a-mole. Because if you replace it, you've just got to replace it with something else that is also complicated, has its own issues. Okay. All right. Well, look, look. Helpful to know. Good. Helpful to understand. <laughs> so let's talk, talk about proof of stake. Yes, let's do it. What, do we know why Ethereum, and I say Ethereum, I say collectively, wants to move to proof of stake? Yeah, so we, we began talking about this earlier. My understanding is this has always been on the Ethereum roadmap since the very beginning, since the kind of 2015 days. Um, the goals were, number one, to reduce the energy intensity. Um, we talked about that part. Number two, scalability, right? So proof of stake makes it much easier to do things like sharding, which we should talk about. Um, and um, I actually had some notes. I'm trying to remember. That's oh, fine. right. The big one is that the, the security is cheaper, okay? So you can, other things being equal, you can reduce issuance and maintain the same level of security or have a higher level of security in theory. Those are, the, those are the biggest benefits to proof of stake. Because the cost of validating blocks is a lot lower. It's much cheaper, right? So the miners yeah. don't have that uh, initial capital outlay that they need. So the difference is, okay, if you buy an ASIC, that ASIC is a physical piece of hardware. It's a physical capital expenditure mm -hmm. that... Um, What's the word for it? Uh, there's, a, there's an accounting term for this. Basically, it degrades over time. Oh. Um, you have to amortize the yeah, it's, um, deprecation. Deprecate, yeah. Deprecates over time. Over something, I think the life, I think it used to be a year to two. Now I think it's like two or three years. You can kind of expect yeah. them to still be profitable, right? But the point is, it, it goes away over time. And miners have to be compensated for that. In the case of proof of stake, yes, you have a capital outlay in the sense that the stake, you have to buy the stake itself and lock it. But if you, at the point where you stop validating and stop staking, you can withdraw the full stake plus rewards. Or you already have a huge stake because you got that as part of the pre-mine exactly. with the creation of In which case there's no, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, I'm being a dick. Okay. No, but that is one of the problems with proof of stake, and we'll yeah. talk about that. So, well, let's talk about... How so does... per, per, per unit of security, uh, the jury is a little bit out, but the number I've heard Vitalik cite, and I, I trust his math, is somewhere between 5 to 15 times as capital efficient. So you, you okay. pay 5 to 15 times, let's just call it 10 times, let's say it's you pay one-tenth of the rewards per block, to get the same level of security. Or alternatively, you pay the same amount and you get 10 times more security, which is the, the cost of attacking the network. Okay, so let's let's talk about what proof of stake is and how it works. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's... So so let's talk about uh, how it replaces proof of work. So in proof of work, right, as we talked about earlier, you, as a miner, you need to spend or commit a scarce resource in order to buy the lottery tickets that make you eligible to mine a block, to potentially mine a block, right? And in proof of work, 
the, the spending that you're doing, the scarce resource that you're committing is the electricity that you're paying for to run the miners to mine the blocks, right? That's pretty straightforward. In proof of stake, you still need this, right? This is what's called a civil resistance mechanism, right? To make sure that you don't have uh, random actors out there who are adversaries who don't have any skin in the game, right? Um, this goes back to our conversation about, about uh, consensus mechanisms earlier, right? This is how they work. Uh, the way that we replace the, the reputation-based system of like a PBFT consensus mechanism with something like Nakamoto consensus is that we replace this notion of, of, of reputation or identity with, with the, the burning of a scarce resource, right? So in the case of proof of stake, the scarce resource is the, um, what's it called? The, uh, well, the capital that you're locking up, the, the time value of the money, the, um, Blanking on the term. No, I, I understand what you mean. You, you, you know, you're locking away your ether, and and you could do something else with that ether, right? Opportunity you could, you cost. Could, you, opportunity cost. Thank you. Yes, it's the opportunity cost of the locked capital, right? Because you could use that. You could go, you know, invest that somewhere else and earn, you know, lend it out, do something, invest it in something else, right? So that is your, that is your scarce resource. And if you misbehave in proof of stake, um, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You are subject to something called slashing in the Ethereum world. And what that means is that a portion, or in the extreme case, all of that stake gets burned. Okay. Uh, and so this is kind of like an analog to the idea of mining a bad block in Bitcoin, and then blocks not accepted by the network, and then you've wasted the electricity. In the case of proof of stake, it's explicit. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. As opposed to implicit. Yeah, okay. The sanction, right? Interesting. That's the high-level idea. Yeah. Uh, now, it's a bit more complicated than that. So, so, so this is where... I've gotten to in this protocol research that I've been doing, it's it's like um, Nakamoto consensus is a thing that works, right? And it's 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 an it's it's an, an equilibrium, right? And what that means is that every time you kind of like like I'm trying to think of an, a, a good metaphor here. Imagine you have like a you know some big fancy robot you've built, right? And you're like, I'm going to tweak it. I'm going to make it a little bit stronger, right? So I'm going to like increase the energy into the the arm muscles so it can like fight better. But the act of doing that, you break something else, right? So every time you like take this Nakamoto consensus robot and you like try to like tweak it and improve it in some way, you know, I'm going to make the, the 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 eyes stronger. I'm, you know, you break something else, right? And so you knock this whole thing out of uh, out of alignment or out of equilibrium. This is the mental model that I've been working with, right? And this is what we, the process, this journey that we've been on developing this proof of space time thing. Um, and so when you make this change that we just talked about, going from proof of work to proof of stake, you break a lot of the really cool stuff that we talked about uh, that you have for free in Nakamoto consensus. So for example, the self-healing thing we talked about, that goes away, right? And the fork choice rule we talked about, that goes away. And so it's sort of like, by the way, I think this is the short answer to the question, why is it mm. taking Ethereum and other networks so long to do this? Why is it taking us so long to, to do something different at Space Mesh? I don't think any of us appreciated the complexity and, and how much fixing we'd have to do after breaking Nakamoto consensus. Is that, does that sort of help at all, that mental model? Yeah, it does. It's lots of sticky passes. Because you can't, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is you can't just make a small change. Okay. It doesn't work that way. So with proof of stake, you lock up your, is there like amounts? Like is there a certain amount, like is it one ETH, one vote, five yeah, ETH, one so, ETH? So different networks do this differently, right? Yeah. So there have been networks prior to Ethereum that have done this. Uh, there was this Steam, Steamit network way back. I don't know if they were the first, but they did this it. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the blog. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, the blogging platform. So they in introduced this delegated proof of stake uh, mechanism. Um, Cosmos launched sometime around 2019 with a also delegated proof of stake. Uh, you've got a lot of blockchains that that do this. Um, and in delegated proof of stake, any 
so there's there's now there's now sort of another class of user, right? So someone so there's people who run the validator nodes, and then there's ordinary people like you and me who have a few of the coins. We can choose to delegate them to one of the validators, and the validators earn. It's a bit like pooling, in proof of work, right? So the validators earn rewards. Um, proportional to the total amount of stake that they've got, which is their own stake plus the delegated stake, and then I, you and I as delegates earn slightly less rewards, right? So that's one model. The Ethereum model is different. Um, in the Ethereum model, there is a uh, single fixed amount. Every validator must commit precisely 32 ETH, and there's no delegation. Okay. There is pooling okay. if you have less than 32 ETH or if you just don't want to run the validator yourself. Okay. Okay, so I have my 32 ETH. Which, by the way... Is a lot of money. I mean, this is over a hundred thousand yeah. dollars today. So this is one of the issues with proof of stake: is that the uh, barrier to entry is high. Although it's also high with proof of work mining. It is, but really, uh, it's one one miner, and you have to join a pool. Right. So you're talking about on the order of ten thousand dollars of capital outlay in the case of proof of work. Right. If you're doing no, this not, not exactly pool. true. I mean, you can. Some people are still mining uh, S nines, and they're still. You had, uh, a, you had a bunch of these, didn't I you? I did, and I sold them. <laughs> I sold them. What did uh, you sell them for again? Uh, one and a half Bitcoin. I sold 70 of them for. Uh, I, I ended up, interestingly, about breaking even dollar value, right. but I lost heavily if right. I'd have just had the Bitcoin. Uh, don't want to talk about fuck. Worst trade uh, ever. Uh, yeah, but you, you learn from this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. We all have our wrecked stories. I accept every part of my life that's led to me being sat, <laughs> being sat here right now. It's the now. only possible healthy yeah. attitude. Life is okay. It's yeah. fine. Um, okay, so, yeah. I, I, there, there is a slight Yes, look, realistically, if you want to mine Bitcoin, you really want to be buying like an S19 now. You can go via, like you said, my compass who are my sponsor. But, you know, you can get on board for about, I don't know what the price is, 15,000, 13, 90, whatever the price is, you can get on board uh, and it all just runs itself and that, and you join a pool. And I guess with ETH, you lock up your 32 ETH via a pool. You can run the validator yourself. You can. Right. But if you is it like or, only is it like only one ASIC and your chance of validating a block's very small? No, no, it's very, very different. So this okay. is actually, yeah, we should get into this. Um, but uh, it's, it's actually, I think the Ethereum design is pretty good here. This is one area in which I'd compliment them. Um, so like I, I can give you very concrete numbers because I, I run one of these and I've been okay. running one since the very beginning. Um, so 32 ETH locked up, that's not a small amount of money. Um, in the very beginning, so this went live just for context. So, so Ethereum is um, soon to transition via this thing called The Merge with a capital M. Soon. Soon, soon. TM. Soon TM. The latest figure I've heard is Q2 of next year. But I, I really... Didn't, didn't they are Vital really close. They are really, Vitalik, really, really close. Didn't Vitalik just say it elects Q1? Uh, the latest I heard was Q2, Q1, Q2. It, I, uh, am, I would be very surprised if it didn't happen next year. Okay. And I can tell you why. Let's, let's come to the yeah. merge. Okay. So but the merge is going to happen. So, so what, what happens when the merge happens? No, no, explain this thing. Like you, you lock up 32. How, yeah. do you, how, so how do you win? Ethereum launched this thing called the Beacon Chain in December of last year. So almost exactly a year ago. Um, and it's a proof of concept, right? So you can't do anything with it. There's no transactions in it. But what you can do is you can take your ETH from mainnet Ethereum, send it to a smart contract, lock it or burn it in that smart contract, and then you unlock that same amount on ETH2 beacon chain. So it's like a one-way bridge, okay? okay. And, then, and then with having done that, you can then use that 32 ETH stake to run a validator on the beacon chain, which, as I said, is 
up to now and up to the merge, just a proof of concept. It's not processing transactions. It's not doing anything. It's just turning out blocks. Is that it's just a proving the proof of stake works. Is that a two-way bridge? One way. Oh, so once you're in. Once you're in, you're in. And you're fucking hopeful this thing works. You can use, you can use financial derivatives to get out, right? So you could sell your ETH2 validator keys to someone else. Like there's, but effectively, yes, you're locked in. Are they, you're in, you're in. Are they selling like for the exact same price? Is there a premium? Is there there's a, a premium because you premium? get paid yield. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, so you now have ETH and BEETH. BEETH is beacon chain ETH that trades on some of the major exchanges. And it trades at a discount, I think, because the point is if you hold it, you earn interest on it. And is beacon a essentially a kind of test net or are the applications working across both? Nothing is running on it yet. At oh, this okay. moment, it's I wouldn't strictly call it a test net because it will become the main net after the merge, but it is a proof of concept as well. Is I it call. an alpha? You can call it a canary net or an alpha. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. An alpha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in the early days, like a year ago, you earned about 15% yield. That gradually fell. Per annum? Your, yes, per annum. Yeah. Annual yield, right? It was 15%, then it fell to about 10%. Now it's down to about 5%. And the reason it falls is because more ETH is moving over. Last I checked, there's about 7, 7.5 million ETH. So is it essentially one giant pool? The question I'm asking is I'm that, not sure how to parse that question. Like, Well, because what I'm saying is like, if that's I- That's the total security of the network. So the yeah, point no. is, if you want to attack the network, you need more than 7.5 million no, ETH. No, what I mean is, if I put my 32 ETH right. in, and you put your 32 ETH in, right. and we're the only two people, does every block evenly reward us both? Yes. And if Jeremy so, joins, so, so, does it equally three-way, or we all compete? So over time, you win exactly a proportion of the rewards rewards relative to your stake. Your stake relative. So, so, it's so like if you have one percent of the rewards over the, it's the same as Bitcoin in this respect. But it's like a pool then. Because the thing is, sure, when, sure. when I, when I go into a, way, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, you know, if I put my money, my uh, if I point my hash at a pool, everyone in the pool gets an equal share, proportionate share, right. Of right, the rewards. Right. It seems right. like this. But there's two mechanisms by which this can happen. I want to yeah. drill this point home because it's important. In the case of proof of work, it's probabilistic. Okay. Yeah. I have a probability of winning the next block that's one over or that's that's my stake over the total stake of sorry, my hash power contribution over the total hash power. So if I have one yeah. percent of the hash power, I have a one percent chance of mining the next block. Taken because of the law of large numbers over a long enough time, over the span of a year, I'm it gonna roughly, right? Proof of stake is different. It's deterministic. It's not probabilistic. Right? Yeah. So what this means is that the protocol dictates that if I have one, how do I put this? All the validators are precisely the same size. They all have the same stake. Right? So what this means is if there's 1,000 validators and I'm running one, then every 1,000 blocks, I'm going to get what's called a slot, where I get to be the block proposer. I get to be the one who creates the block. Okay? So this is a really, really interesting, actually. Um, on all the other blocks, I still get paid rewards, but I get paid a very small sliver of rewards, and that's for doing what's called attesting, right? So, so I, I see the block, uh, the last block that was produced, and I, I just like in Bitcoin, just like we talked about, I check that it's valid, etc., and then I notarize it, I sign it, and I say this block is valid. Okay, this is the process of validating. So, if you actually look at the rewards function over time, you have like little you get 0.001 ETH, 0.001 ETH, 0.001 ETH, and then once every few days, you get a big jump. Oh, I got 0.1 ETH or something, okay. and that's because I produced the block there. My validator okay. produced the block. Interesting. Yeah. But if you take this zoom out, as I said, over the span of the past year, it's been about 10% APOI, which is, it won't stay that high. It, as I said, it's already fallen down to 5%, but it's pretty decent. I, I want to ask you about the merge and I want to ask about criticisms, but is there anything sure. else I'm missing on proof of stake that I should be aware of? I, I think there's uh, just two final points I would make um, before we transition. So the first is um, we're talking now about validation. And we didn't really get to talk about sharding, right? This is a technology that Ethereum is 
is planning to introduce. It's not going to happen as part of the merge. It's going to happen down the road. Um, it's a scalability thing, right? Where it's no longer the case that every node needs to, to handle every transaction, right? Each node is only is only responsible for a subset of transactions. So um, proof of stake enables this. It's very difficult, maybe impossible, to do something like sharding using using proof of work. So this is just one point, another benefit of it. And the final one I'd make, again, and just being objective here, I think it's important to talk about this. Um, I think Lynn spoke about this. Um, you've had other folks on uh, talking about this as well. Proof of stake doesn't have a physical footprint, the mining, right? So if you are that miner in a place like Venezuela and you're running a bunch of proof of work miners, you're using a lot of electricity and that has a physical footprint on the energy grid and uh -huh. the government can find you. Yep. And actually now I'm remembering now, this was the conversation you had with Alex and Eric, right? Uh, where you also talked a bit about proof it's of stake, right? Point. And and I agree with this point. I, again, I, I um, have my criticisms, which we'll get to. But like this is actually a, a strong argument in favor of proof of stake, right? Um, that you can run these things anywhere in the world, and there's little to no energy footprint. Uh, in that respect, it's a bit more censorship resistant. And I think that it's maybe I'm cutting ahead here. Maybe we'll do a summary at the end. But it's it's good that these systems both exist. Hold on, it's more censorship resistant, or it's in the sense that a government, a state actor, could censor miners because okay. they can find them because they have this big energy footprint, whereas in proof of stake, there's no energy footprint, so you're invisible. And you can pick it up and move it. I, I can take my, my VM, my virtual machine yep. that's running my validator, and ship it across the world in a few seconds. I can't do that with the physical infrastructure required for proof of work mining. So this is a valid argument in favor of proof of stake. And is there, is there no way of analyzing internet traffic to find you doing this? Very difficult okay. because the traffic okay. is so low and you can obfuscate it in various ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a key distinction and it's worth yeah, no, highlighting. That's, no, no, it's, no I'm, I'm, that's fair. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. We can we can move on. Okay. So <laughs> but before we go to criticisms, just I just you might need a long way to answer this, but I, it sounds this merge sounds huge. Merge with a capital M. Yeah. It sounds like a huge undertaking. Does this merge present any? massive risks to ethereum that like something could be inherently broken or wrong could this could this bring down the ethereum blockchain is there a process to roll back if it's a huge fuck up like this is most things are beyond my technical skill yeah. this is way beyond my any understanding but i can recognize this is a huge yeah. deal yeah yeah this is the this is the biggest change to the ethereum network ever right by an order of magnitude at least in terms of complexity uh, and I think you could make the case it's the biggest change to any production blockchain network of any size, of any meaningful size ever, right? So it's 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 a huge technical undertaking. Um, it's something that's been worked on for years, right? There's been a work up to this for years. Um, I, I'm not like personally involved in this process. So I, I like, for example, to your question about like what's the plan if it goes wrong, I, I have no idea what, what the answer to that would be. I've been watching this as you have, you know, like kind of eating my popcorn, very excited to see it happen, you know, preparing for the fireworks. What I'll say in, in defense of the folks doing this is a couple things. First of all, the fact that they've had this beacon chain running now for a year without any hiccups, with no issues, right? And if you look at like networks like, you know, Solana's had like at least two major outages recently. Other proof of stake networks have had issues. The beacon chain has not ever gone down as far as I'm aware. But has it really been stress tested? Um, good question. It's not processing any value, so maybe yeah. not, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that there are, so a, a key difference here between Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is quite interesting, is that in Ethereum, especially ETH2, you have many independent client implementations. So there's something like four that are all viable, that are all 
running the beacon chain right now, totally independent, written from scratch, different languages, different frameworks, different teams, different geographies, different funding sources. It's very decentralized in that respect. And they've all these clients have been running now on, um, not only have they been running testnets, not only have they been running the beacon chain, they've also built testnets specifically to test the transition um, that, as far as I know, have gone pretty well. So it's a huge change. There's a lot of risk, no question. There's a lot of risk associated with it. But look, this gets right to the heart of the, the philosophical differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. We talked about this last time. Like Ethereum is very much about maximizing innovation, moving fast and break thing, breaking things. Uh, I can't see Ethereum ever, sorry, I can't see Bitcoin ever trying to do something like this. No, never. So anyone observant is going to go, what the fuck? Where did they come from? And where, where did these where did these come, come from? from? We just took we, we just took a coffee break. We went to get coffee. Uh, okay, let's talk about risks. This is what people are really going to care about. What are the risks? I mean, it was you who reached out to me. You said you want to talk about why you you are not a fan of proof of stake. Why you don't think Ethereum should go to proof of stake? Is that fair? I'm not sure I agree with that. Statement. Okay. But why I definitely think Bitcoin shouldn't go to proof of stake. Well, Bitcoin never will go to proof right. of stake. Okay, let's talk. Talk to me about the risks. Talk to me about the issues with proof okay. of stake. Yeah. So we talked about the history. We talked about the potential benefits. Let's talk about the darker side. Um, okay. Let's start simple. One of the things we love about Bitcoin is that it's permissionless, mm -hmm. right? And this means a bunch of things, right? It means that no one can stop anyone from transacting on Bitcoin. Um, but it, it, it's subtle, right? So. It also means that if you want to participate in Bitcoin, obviously, if you want to make a transaction or do whatever, like you need some Bitcoin, right? You need to be able to pay fees in Bitcoin. Same as in Ethereum. In Bitcoin, you can mine permissionlessly, right? That means that anyone, anywhere, at any point in time who has the software and the hardware can just spin up a mining node and start earning Bitcoin for themselves permissionlessly. They're truly permissionlessly. All you need is electricity and internet access. That's it. Um, this is not the case in proof of stake. Because if you want to stake, someone needs to sell you the coins to stake in the first place, right? And this uh -huh. is and this is closely tied to another issue with proof of stake, which is that um, proof of work is great for getting the uh, initial distribution in place, right? So when Bitcoin started, there were no Bitcoin in existence, and every block that was mined, uh, you know, obviously Satoshi mined the first few blocks, and, and some of the other early folks, um, that had the effect over many years of getting lots of Bitcoin in the hands of lots of parties uh, around the world, just, uh, casual hobbyists in the beginning and then later on more professionals. Uh, it's also been the case in Ethereum proof-of-work mining. Proof-of-stake doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't solve the distribution problem. So in practice, what most of these projects and protocols do is they have a set of investors early on and they just hand a bunch of coins to those investors. And those investors have the coins and stake them and continue to earn more coins against them. Um, so as I said, it's not permissionless and it doesn't solve the distribution problem. So those are two pretty straightforward, but big flaws, I think, with proof of stake. Let me put uh, an idea to you. I haven't thought this through because it's literally just come into my head, but there are, there is a lens on, let's say, the cryptocurrency community from different regulatory bodies in the US, SEC being one of them. Do you think there's ever a risk that to stake with Bitcoin, you will be compelled to KYC? To stake with Bitcoin? I don't know. No, sorry, to stake with Ethereum. Absolutely. I mean, this, this, I think language to that effect 
was literally included in the most recent version of the infrastructure bill, the one that actually passed. And there was a huge uproar about this a few months ago. That mm-hmm. basically the 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 language around the definition of like operators or or even I think brokerages, something like this was so loose that it could even include people who are doing things like staking. So yes, that risk exists. Is that the same risk of requiring miners to KYC in the same jurisdiction? No, there's a specific carve out for proof of work mining. Okay. Which is okay. interesting. Good, right? good. Yeah. yeah. So Bitcoin is safe. Interesting. Okay. All right. Carry on. So that's the first bundle of risks. Um, okay. The next one, and, and I'll just I'll just asterisk this by saying that Ethereum is working around this because they bootstrapped with proof of work and they're transitioning to proof of stake. Ethereum is in a relatively unique position of being able to do this. Other proof of stake networks have not done this. And if you don't do this, like I mean, we could talk about the pre-mine. I don't think we need to. We talked about this last time. But mm-hmm. if, if you set that aside for a moment, then you know, at least since the mining started in, in Ethereum, the, the distribution has been pretty broad. So this is less of an issue for Ethereum than for other proof-of-stake networks. Um, the next one gets to one of the core criticisms that Bitcoiners tend to have of proof-of-stake, which is this question of kind of subjectivity versus objectivity and um, knowing that you're on the right chain. So another elegant feature of proof of work and Nakamoto consensus that we didn't talk about earlier is the fact that any actor can look at um, the latest block. In fact, they don't even need the whole block, just from the block header alone, right? So a light client can do this. They can pretty much figure out for themselves that they're on the longest chain. Um, and it's purely objective. It's it's based on, you know, it's, uh, it's thermodynamic, right? It's based on the amount of work that was expended. Um, and if they're given multiple chain tips, multiple blocks, basically, they can tell totally objectively which one is the longest, right, With, without a shadow of a doubt. And so what this means in practice is that, like, once you have that initial software running, you can shut your node down for an arbitrary period of time and boot it up later. And assuming there haven't been hard forks, and in Bitcoin there really aren't hard forks, right, you could turn it on 10 years later and still find the latest chain, the latest valid chain. That's a pretty powerful thing to be mm-hmm. able to do. This is a big issue in proof of stake, okay? So let's talk about why. Um, so this, this I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Um, we have this issue that's called costless simulation, okay? In proof of work, if you want to go off and mine a, a, a long chain and try to convince the world that your chain is the longest, it's going to be very, very expensive. There's simply no way around that, right? You have to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars in electricity to run these hash functions to mine the blocks. Like that is just set in stone. And that's another elegant feature of the protocol. In proof of stake, the the process of actually constructing a chain is costless in and of itself, right? Assuming you have the required keys, in other words, that you're like in the validator set. And so any validator from any point in the history of the chain or any, any sort of set of validators can construct an alternative chain basically for free. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the easiest way to think about this is that you are a majority, you're two-thirds of the validators uh, from a year ago or something, and you can just go back in time and just re- reconstruct a new chain. Uh, but even a minority set of validators could theoretically do this. It would just take a little bit longer. A new chain, and would that be considered a fork, or would that be considered a chain split? Like, and the, yeah. the difference being is like, I consider a fork as a a hard fork as an accidental split or a purpose split designed to, because there's new rules of consensus. I'm talking now about a purposeful split. Purposeful split. Right, it's a form of attack, and so this particular form of attack is called a long-range attack. So a new, it just becomes a new token. Totally new 
knew everything. In the case of Ethereum, it's a total state fork. So everything on Ethereum would be on, exist on both chains. But here's the problem, right? The problem is that, uh, okay, so if you have been online the whole time, right, you're running your validator, it, you're on a, whatever, strong internet connection, you're, you're very responsible, you upgrade it, you keep it running, you're fine, right? If someone presents you an alternative chain, you're going to look at it and say, well, no, I, this is not. Like, I, I know what the real chain is. The problem is, let's go back to the example we said a moment ago. Let's say that you start your thing up and you turn it off for some period of time. You know, who knows what that reason is. Um, you know, maybe you're in a, in a part of the world where you have metered access to electricity or something, right? You turn the thing back on and now you have sort of two peers who send you like two competing chains. You can't determine in the same objective fashion which of those chains is the right chain or the longest chain like you can with proof of stake, sorry, with proof of work. So you have this, um, this is, so Ethereum people call this weak subjectivity. You have this certain degree of subjectivity. It's trust is what it boils down to. You have to trust some peer or some subset of peers. In the case of Ethereum, this means you're trusting someone like an Etherscan or something, right? To kind of tell you this is the right chain. And Bitcoiners hate this for obvious reasons. But is it that big a problem? Is, it sounds like the kind of compromise that Ethereum people would be okay with anyway. Yeah, that's exactly the type of thing it is, right? And, and I think the argument that's usually advanced here is that there's already some degree of social trust, right? So if you're, anytime there's any network upgrade, hard fork, soft fork, whatever it is, like you're probably going to GitHub, you're probably downloading a new binary or the new source code, and maybe it's signed by the developers, maybe it isn't, maybe you're responsible enough to like check the hash of the file you downloaded, maybe you're not. But the point is like, you're still, there's still some social out of bound, out of band trust here that's baked into this whole system anyway. And so this is no worse than that. Um, is there any reason why someone might choose to split the chain for selfish purposes to do this? So this is, this is an interesting aspect of proof of stake as well. In proof of work, if you want to split the chain, again, you need a lot of miners. You need a lot of yeah. uh, sort of capital investment or you need to convince a lot of miners to, to join you. In proof of stake, you can fork costlessly. Really, the cost is zero. Like you, you either, and I, I'm now not talking about a long-range attack. I'm saying in a long-range attack, you're like going off in the corner, you're doing something privately for a while, and then you like flood the network with blocks and you try to confuse people. This is not like that. If you just say, um, just like we had the Bitcoin block size wars and mm -hmm. things, right? If you want to have a contentious hard fork and say, I'm going to uh, double the block size, whatever change you want to make, um, that's a very hard thing to do in a proof of work world for the reason we talked about. Right? Mm. You have to like convince a bunch of miners to join you. In proof of stake, like you can just go in and change two or three lines of code. You can kind of insert yourself as a validator or something. Uh, so the point here is that the cost of forks is very, very cheap in proof of stake. I'm not. I think you asked a question. I'm not sure if I spoke to it directly, no, but I wanted to get to this point. Yeah, it's yeah. Valid. But no, I understand what you're saying. Um, okay. If you make it that easy and cheap to fork, a lot of this is like we just don't know how this will play out in reality because it hasn't been around very long. Yeah. But I would argue that one of the reasons we've seen so few forks in like Bitcoin and Ethereum to date is because doing it in a proof of work world is expensive. Yeah. This is why the beacon chain is still a testnet to me until it the merge happens, because. Either way, some people are going to try fucking around with it, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that Bitcoin and Ethereum are honeypots, and there's a lot of money on the stake, uh, on stake there for anyone who can kind of. If someone does that split, is essentially this, the, at that point though there are two tokens. So this, so this, because if you hard for Bitcoin, but but you, you have but two in tokens. Bitcoin, like you again, you know intrinsically, yeah, which one is really Bitcoin, right? And and Bitcoin has. It's always been the case that the longest chain was Bitcoin, yeah. um, and, and that other segments of the community, when there was social disagreement around block size or something else, they were able to fork off. This is obviously not true in Ethereum because of the DAO hard fork. <laughs> we covered that before. 
We did. <laughs> All right. Okay. Fine. So you make you're making forks cheaper. So that's okay. another interesting thing. Uh, not necessarily bad. And you could argue that it's good because you want to encourage forks if if you have again, like a subgroup in the community who really, really, truly differs in a way that can't be reconciled, let them fork off and do their own thing. So it kind of could go either way. I kind of, to me, this is like a neutral. Okay. So, so this is about trust model, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we have this like issue of subjectivity and these long range attacks. Uh, let me take one tiny further point about this. Um, Ethereum has some interesting approaches to fixing this, right? So, so one of the issues historically with proof of stake is this thing called the nothing at stake problem, right? And this goes back to what I said earlier about the fact that it's costless to create a second fork. Um, and if you do that and you're a validator and you see both of them, then in theory, like the way the kind of game theory works out in proof of work, you kind of have to pick one, right? You can't, if you split your hash power in two and you try to like validate or mine on both of these chains, you're probably gonna end up with nothing, right? You're hurting yourself in proof of work. In proof of stake, you're incentivized to um, sort of validate both chains. Because again, the cost to you is basically nothing to do that in a naive model. Does that, does that part make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Again, you're not splitting your hash power. There's no work associated with the process of validating. So what Ethereum has introduced to fix this is this idea of equivocation, right? So if you're a validator and you sort of approve two different blocks at the same block height on two different chains, then on each of those chains, you can take the the the, what's the word for this, the notarization or whatever, like that, that, that message that you broadcast as a validator and signed and, and broadcast it on the other chain as what's called a fraud proof. So it's proof that, that this validator has been validating multiple chains and then they get slashed. Okay, so this is Ethereum's way to address this nothing at stake problem. However, it's still the case that like validators need to be able to stop validating, right? If you say, peace out, I'm done, I wanna like withdraw my stake, there's like a long period of time. You have to wait something like weeks or maybe even months to be able to withdraw your stake and stop validating. Once you've done that, once you've withdrawn and that period has expired, you can no longer be punished because you've taken your stake out. And you can still do bad things, right? You could still, uh, after the fact, like many months later, sell your keys to a bad actor who wants to use them to, to carry out the sort of attack we just talked about, this long range attack. So that's sort of how these things can happen. There's some very complex, interesting game theory there. Um, there's not really a solution for this other than social coordination, which it requires some trust. A lot of unknowns for a, a $500 billion, whatever it is, $600 billion protocol. All right, let's go to the next one, yep. if you're ready. Yep. Um, so now this does tie into kind of Ethereum economics and pre-mine and things like this. Um, I know where you're going. So rebuilding the Keynesian model. I think we're going to get there, yeah. Uh, so, so, okay, Ethereum's so, Cantillian effect. That's the final. I have a little oh, okay. star next to that. I want to conclude with that one. Okay. But I just, this, this, this one leads into the other. So a proof of stake chain is subject to invisible capture. Okay, what does that mean? Um, once an attacker, or forget the term attacker, like once a, a coalition or a um, cartel of stakers, validators, controls more than half of the stake in the network, it's game over. It's really, it's game over. Right? So this is the proof of stake 51% attack. Correct, right? But the difference is in Bitcoin or in proof of work mining, it's not game over because another miner can come along and turn on additional hash power and reduce the stake of the attacker to below 51%, right? Again, like it has this nice like healing kind of mechanism. And I, and I also think Harry Suck told me, realistically, you need way more than 51% yes. anyway. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, there's theoretical attacks of less than 51% in practice. Like, 
you need way more because as you're building, like if you have exactly half, then as yeah. you're building a chain, the, chain, the other yeah, chain exactly. is growing. So if you want to get ahead, yeah. It, proof of work is, is very resilient to this sort of attack. Proof of stake is not. Right? But, but also, if you were to... The, the game theory of issuing a 51% attack against Bitcoin is super expensive. Yes. Like we're talking in magnitudes of billions of dollars and you still might, would probably lose. Right, I agree with that. The, the only the only people incentivized to do that feel like a state attacker. You, you could okay. There are ways to so this gets back to this question of ASICs versus GPUs, which mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. Um, with GPUs, with a network like Ethereum, where the mining happens using GPUs, GPUs are commodity hardware. You can rent them on Amazon or Google Cloud, mm -hmm. right? So you can actually carry out an attack, even a fifty one percent attack against even a network like Ethereum, for a brief period of time by renting that hash power. You can't do that to Bitcoin because of the ASICs, right? Because they're, they're limited in supply. Yeah. And like, like we, we always talk about state actors and what if China or some other like country wanted to come in and attack Bitcoin. I mean, I think a lot of the ASICs are manufactured in China. Maybe China could, right? But the point is like it would take you so long to get that hardware. By the time you got it, the world would have moved on. The hash power will be higher. It's totally unrealistic. And the attack would be obvious when right. it starts to happen so the right. network can respond. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay, right. So this is, this is a good way to connect back to what I said about invisible capture, right? So um, it's a little bit different. It's not exactly a form of attack, right? It's, it's not necessarily the case that you could do things like double spending or violating the, the rules of the protocol because, again, anyone running a node to the extent that they exist would still notice that. All six of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they would see, so another nice property of proof of stake is you can see the attacker's identity. Right, because they have a stake associated with that wallet address yeah. or whatever it is, that identity. And so, yes, you can do things like burning their stake or slashing them or, or just evicting them, um, and, and they can no longer attack. So I'm not really talking about attacks in that sense. I'm talking more about economic, I think, capture is the word I, I'm using here. Right. So capture, state capture is an idea in politics. And you see this all over the world in like failing governments, and for that matter, you probably see it in your government and my government as well, you know, where certain like organs of the state are captured by powerful economic interests and they sort of like fail to um, fulfill their mission and, and stand up for the rights of the people because they have, you know, like a small number of like wealthy people controlling them. So this happens all over the world. Um, so like for me, the whole point of crypto in the first place and, and of Bitcoin is that it's like the people's money and the people's mm -hmm. network and, and, and it's completely protected from capture. But with proof of stake, again, anytime you have a coalition of actors who have more than half of the stake of the network, it's game over in the sense that they can never be diluted, period, full stop. So does that make sense, right? Because yeah. they have the majority of the stake and they're earning the majority of the stake. Uh, Lynn gave a, I think it was mm -hmm. Lynn in, in that article, she gave a really fun example of this, right? She said, Mary, the school teacher, earns $20,000 a year and is given 200 voting tokens by the government. And uh, because in proof of stake, right, the proportion, the degree to which you're able to vote is directly proportional to your, 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 your I guess, uh, wealth, let's say, right? So she's got $20,000 in the bank. She gets handed 200 voting tokens. And then she gets paid for voting. Right? So she gets paid $200 to vote. Um, Jeff Bezos has $100 billion in the bank, right? receives 100 million voting tokens from the government, and gets paid $100 million to vote. So, so this now gets into this Cantillon effect question. Um, but the point is, you have these wealthy actors, a small number of wealthy actors who uh, dominate the network and continue to um, get paid just simply for being wealthy. So and can never be caught. Right, it can happen invisibly, yeah. right? Because in the case of Ethereum, all of the validators have exactly the same 32 ETH, and so they're indistinguishable from one another. 
Um, so you could have a single wealthy actor, you know, again, this goes back to the Ethereum pre-sale. So at this moment, 60 something percent of the ETH that exists um, was issued in a single moment at the pre-sale. And so you have some very small number of actors who control a very outsized proportion of the stake of that network, right? Um, you, you'll never know. You'll never be able to see it because to you, each validator will just show up as another pseudonymous actor. And they have a great way to earn a massive amount of yield on that now. So the Cantillon effect, by the way, super interesting, something I've begun to look into because of you know conversations on your show, um, is it, it sort of states that money is not neutral. Money is political, okay? And inflation does not impact everyone or every sector of the economy equally. Mm-hmm. And the way it's usually characterized is to say that uh, the actors who are close to closest to the like organs of power in the state are the ones who benefit the most from inflation issuance, things like that. They're, they're close to the, the money spigot, so to mm-hmm. speak, right? So this is, I think, proof of stake is a perfect example of this, right? And so I think those, those, those powerful, wealthy actors are highly incentivized to evolve the protocol in such a way that like whether they intentionally do this or unintentionally, you know, subconsciously, sometimes we, we do things mm-hmm. out of our own self-interest, right? In a way that's not necessarily good for like the overall health of the network or the the minnows as opposed to the whales. But this goes back to my point whereby why I think it's so important to, to distinguish between what Bitcoin is and its goals right. and what Ethereum is and its goals. And if Ethereum's goals, if people within Ethereum say that the goal is that Ethereum is ultrasound money and it's better money than Bitcoin, then it's fundamentally dishonest. Right, because the thing is when they say that, they're looking strictly at... Number go up. Issuance. Issuance, issuance and burn. Yeah. Right? Minting and burning. That's yeah. it. But it's 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 narrow because they're leaving out all these nuanced aspects of the governance and the stuff we're talking about now. The issues, also the, the, mo- the, the kind of like the ethics of um, uh, the ethics of of what makes sound money. They're, they're totally missing that because one of the points, one of the big issues for Bitcoiners with Bitcoin being sound money is. Is 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 being in opposition to the Cantillon effect? Exactly. It is that we don't make we don't we're not in this position where those closest to the as you say the money spigot benefit most. Right. It is a complete open, fair network. I think there's a good way to express this, and this also comes from I keep mentioning this the fantastic article from Lynn. Yeah. Please put it in the show notes. Read it, it will be there. Uh, excellent, excellent metaphor. And this She's, is a metaphor of um, companies versus sort of money, right? Like stock equity yeah. versus money, right? So proof of stake is a lot like equity. It's like the way companies work, okay? Um, companies are not democratic. It's not mm-hmm. one person, one vote, right? It's one share, one vote. And um, we're, we're kind of okay with this. Why, why is it okay? Well, it's, I mean, why do companies want to do this? They want to do it because it's kind of efficient, right? Yeah. Like you can have a small number of actors sitting in a room together, you know, around the, the board table, right? Making decisions quickly. Democracy is like slow and messy, okay? Why are we okay with it? We're okay with it because companies, like we can choose to transact with them or not. Right, like you chose to buy your laptop from Apple, and we chose to buy these coffees at Starbucks. Like we could have gone to Birch Coffee down the street if we don't like Starbucks. Right, in a in a healthy functioning market economy. Now, of course, the the place where this starts to get messy is is the question of kind of the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. These kind of platforms that are monopolies to some degree. Right. Um, so, but at least in theory, right, we have this sort of choice to like transact with companies or not. And so, like, sure, companies may be a little unfair. Maybe the people. Without a doubt, the people who are kind of close to the money spigots at these companies are the ones who are benefiting the most. But um, it's not democratic and it's not egalitarian in the way that Bitcoin can be. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I find this metaphor very helpful. 
Okay, these are all interesting points, but they're points you can argue over, debate over. And Ethereum people will defend it, whatever. Which means they have a different idea and goal for Ethereum, as you know, maybe Bitcoiners do for Bitcoin. Are there any existential threats to Ethereum with any of this? Or is it just a different thing? It's a great question. I love this question, by the way. Like, if something were to destroy Bitcoin, what would it be? If something were to destroy Ethereum, what would it be? I mean, Bitcoin, what, what could destroy Bitcoin? Uh, good, the, the, the list good, is getting shorter and shorter. Good government with good monetary policy. Yeah, what's the, what's the likelihood of that happening in our lifetimes? Just zero. <laughs> I, I take that from Safe Dean. Um, uh, the loss of all power on Earth. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, they're, they're very large risks uh, they sorry they're they're very large events yeah yeah kind of like a like macro political global they're, they're kind of a couple apocalypse type yeah. event yeah, like if they happen we've got bigger problems to worry yeah. about than the yeah. price of bitcoin Glo maybe like global uh coordination between major states and minor states maybe you know but like they're like you say they're getting smaller and smaller yeah but, but, i mean the list for ethereum of course is longer i i for me the biggest threat to Ethereum is not, certainly not Bitcoin per se, it's not any particular threat vector. It's kind of like, uh, I guess obsolescence is the word I would use, right? Okay. It's that, uh, so Ethereum is in this weird middle position, right? When we have kind of like Bitcoin on one hand is absolute, like slide, we talked about this last time as well, slide mm -hmm. the like security lever up to absolute maximum, maximum sovereign grade censorship resistance, maximum um, you know, decentralization, these sorts of things, right? Uh, and then you have, um, in the opposite extreme, you have you know, centralized databases and you know the, the Firebases and, and Solana and these other kind of projects are somewhere else. But but the point is because Ethereum's in the middle, um, it in this direction, the risk is that the the real risk is regulatory, right? The risk is that is that governments um, around the world coordinate, which is not super likely, but it could happen, right? And it is happening right now around like a global tax regime. You know, they're trying to establish a minimum tax base globally. So there's some precedent for this. They kind of coordinate to, to decide that. They never shut things down completely, but they just make it harder. You know, there's more KYC and this and that. And in, in, in parallel to that, that uh, it gets harder and harder to run a node. And so there's fewer and fewer of them. So in practice, when the state comes knocking, you know, there are only five or six actors globally, you know, known actors in countries like this one, right, that they could knock on the door and kind of like make it expensive or difficult to transact, right? So that's kind of the risk in this direction. And the risk in this direction for Ethereum, because it's in the middle, is that it gets outperformed by Solana or by more centralized projects. Yeah, see, it's a really interesting thing, the, the, the situation with Solana right now is that... Very interesting. What benefit does it... You know, if you're an application builder, a smart contract uh, developer, if you're an NFT uh, distributor... What does Ethereum, why would you choose Ethereum over Solana? The short answer is standards, right? The short answer is that EVM has, is eating the world. Um, and when I say EVM, this is, of course, the Ethereum virtual machine. This is like the, the, the part of the Ethereum node that actually executes the smart contract. Um, it, in very concrete terms, EVM is like, uh, it's a set of instructions that, uh, you know, contracts uh, can... Um, run to do things like moving money around and issuing tokens and changing state and these sorts of things. But what it really means is this whole ecosystem that's emerged around it, right? And so this is the tooling 
that the developers use to write the smart contracts. This is the language, Solidity, that compiles to it. There's other languages that are compiling to it. This is tools that developers use to do things like um, profiling and debugging their code, even just the IDE, the, 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 uh, the editor integrations, the auto-completion, little things like this, they matter. This developer ergonomic stuff matters to us as developers. And it's also this ecosystem of auditors. This is a big one that's a little underappreciated, right? It's taken years for this um, ecosystem of, of auditors to emerge, right? And it still takes months and costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get professional audits done. Good luck getting that done on Solana mm -hmm. or on any of the other dozen smart contract languages that are emerging. Um, I want to share, we're struggling in a big way, very big way with this question in Space Mesh today. And I think a lot of projects have to be, right? Like, should we just throw, like we've been building our own VM and our own smart contract language. Should we throw them out the window and just recognize that the world has moved on and, and most the vast majority of projects want to just use existing code, use existing relationships with auditors, and just do everything in solidity, solidity and EVM. That's the short answer to your question. That's why a mm. developer would choose Ethereum. However, Solana and all these other platforms are responding to this. They're not dumb, mm -hmm. right? By introducing are, EVM yeah. compatibility modes where you can take Solidity code that's been built and deployed on Ethereum and deploy it on Solana. Oh, well, listen. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad. To, I'm glad to hear. Hear about it from you. I mean, I'm, I'm. As you know, I'm just like I'm not a technical person. I'm very happy within the Bitcoin world. I'm very happy storing my money in Bitcoin. Very happy in building a business which is backed by Bitcoin or businesses. I understand. I, you know what? Do you know what the big difference is? I know what Bitcoin is. Yeah. I still don't know what Ethereum is. I don't either, and I've been doing this for years. Yeah, it just seems like a big fucking mess of stuff like all this stuff it can be can do and maybe people using it know what it is to them and that and that's fine and that's cool for them but for me all you've done is you've revalidated why i care so much about bitcoin because i care about the mission of separating money and state giving people sound money it's really simple and by the way so i agree with that yeah. mission it's a it's the best mission out there we, we're only 2% of the way, I mean, you've talked to Alex about this many yeah. times and other folks who are doing this. We're only 2% of the way along the road to executing on that mission as Bitcoiners. We've got our work cut out for us. So it's not that there's not plenty of things for us to work on in Bitcoin with the tools we have at our disposal, right? But the thing is, it's the mission is simple. Like, what are you doing? Separating money and state. What is it? Best form of money that ever existed. Sure. It's really easy to say what it is. What is Bitcoin? And this, it's a really easy mission to get behind. And then really, yeah, while Satoshi brought together all these complicated parts to create the system, actually the design is elegantly simple and beautiful. And yeah. I just think Ethereum's the exact opposite on everything. What is it? I don't know. I mean, it's a smart contract platform. It's ultrasound money. It's a platform if for ICs. If you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers. Yeah. What's the mission? I, I don't know what the mission. How does it do it? Well, it's all this fucking stuff. Again, ask 10 people, get 10 yeah. different answers. This is... I, and by the way, I've, I've heard Vitalik and other stakeholders in Ethereum admit that this is one of Ethereum's issues, is that it's a big tent kind of politically and it doesn't have a unifying mission. And this is a big part of my story, why I chose to stop contributing to that project two years ago. Well, this is why it's so important to separate what they are. Right. And I've just said to Ethereum people, they really need to figure out what they are, what they're going to be. But it's almost what an impossible mission. they want to be when mission. they grow up. <laughs> well, it's almost an impossible mission because you either need that dictator to right. decide it, which would be... Vitalik, or you let the community decide, but the community is so fractured in terms of what it has been and what it's going to be. The community is also very busy chasing number go up. Exactly. And that's frustrating to see. I mean, I'm actually, I love 
a lot of the stuff that's happened with NFTs recently because at least there's an element of creativity there. I shouldn't say there isn't in DeFi. There is as well. There's some very, there's a lot of creativity happening there, but it's DeFi hacks, it man. DeFi hacks. All I see is another hundred million here, another hundred million there, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Growing pains, <laughs> mate. Honestly, listen, Lane. Always like talking to you. Uh, I consider you a good friend now, and I appreciate you coming on talking about this. We both will get some shit for various different reasons, but I do. I love. I, I learn so much from you, and you know, it just reinforces why I care about Bitcoin. The very simple mission we're on. Um, but yeah, I learn a lot from you, and thank you so much. And I wish you the best. And we'll uh, we'll do another thing, another six months, six to twelve months. We'll figure another topic where we can have your world and my world converge. But um, yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Amazing. Great to be here. I look forward to it. And I've learned a ton from you and the guests you've had on the show. So keep up the good work. I think you've learned from the guests, not me, but... <laughs> Especially Lynn. Especially Lynn. Yeah. Going to be interviewing her this week in person, which I'm very excited Amazing. about. We've done 12 or 13, never in person. So I'm, I'm trying to think of the big topic to do with her. And I am fully figured that out, but I'll talk to you about I'm it. I'm sure she finish. could speak brilliantly to a ton of topics. I, I, could, I started reading her all the other stuff she's written. And it's it's great. It's everything's better than the last. So, dude, if I tell her I bought a football club, she'll probably tell me how to run it, and she'll have the best solution. <laughs> Listen, anyway, take care, man. Thank Appreciate you. your time. You too. Be well. Okay, thanks for listening to what Bitcoin did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me. The best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very very soon.